What's up, booties? It's Nick here. Just wanted to take a minute before we get into the episode to apologize for the fact that it's coming out a little bit later than anticipated, and for the fact that the show that we promoted for Danny has since passed. However, you can catch Danny performing at Powerhouse Folsom August 5th, if you're lucky, or you can just follow her on Instagram at Danny Demise, which is D-A-N-I-D-E-M-I-Z-E. Or you can just follow the Scream Queens Gorlesque troupe at Scream Queens Gorlesque for all your bloody good times. I would also like to apologize for those watching the video because towards the end of the video we had some technical difficulties. I lost a camera, then another camera, and uh, pretty sure I'm just haunted. There was a lot of crazy shit, so check that out. Stay tuned. Other than that, hope you enjoy the episode. Hope you enjoy Danny. And remember, be careful out there. Because you never know when you might get dabbed to death. I feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. <laughs> Be careful. You never know when you might get dabbed to death. <laughs> yeah, I actually just got that. Oh my god, I love Ghostface. I actually have an empty coffin tattoo on my back of one of my legs. I'm gonna get Ghostface in it. Nice. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, I have, no, I have another shirt that's Ghostface and it says Call Me. Oh, yeah. hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been addicted to this app called Timu. I don't know if you've I heard of it. I just heard of that for like the first time the other day yeah. and I'm like, what the fuck even is so, this? So I don't know what it is exactly where the stuff comes from but like everything we've bought off of it so far mostly everything has been pretty actually pretty good okay. i got that little hellraiser puzzle cube off of it oh, and nice. it's actually pretty heavy and solid is it like actually functional yeah you can you can, oh, like you can only do like you it? can only do the two two of the like formations oh okay and it's kind of hard to figure out which way you got to push it right but i mean it works yeah it's not Eventually. like this is plastic junkie oh, there we go yeah. Oh, that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, and then you can just slide it back into the normal cube. And then, like, Hell feel how yeah. heavy that is. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it had a little stand somewhere. That's I just don't know. I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. But, yeah, so, like, I got that. I got the, the ghost-faced rug. I'm ghost-faced um, rug now. whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> and everything's super cheap. Like, really cheap. Huh. I got five, pair, or five shirts and three pairs of pants for $100. Damn. Yeah. In this economy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alright, uh just run the intro real quick. Hey all you voodoos and voo dolls and all you vooties in between. As always, I am Nick Nobody Savage, and you are listening to Dab to Death. If you are watching on YouTube, then you have noticed that I am joined in the studio by a very special guest. <laughs> and if you are listening to the audio only, allow me to introduce Danny Demise. Hi. So, how you doing? I'm good. Chilling with this cool cat. <laughs> right. She <laughs> decided to be. Yeah, she decided now. to be a part of the show. <laughs> if I try to stop petting her, she's like, "What are you doing?" Right. Yeah, she gets offended. <laughs> yeah. She gets really offended. 
I'm oh. doing good though. Yeah. I'm doing good. Nice. Surviving this heat wave. Oh, it's yeah, it's brutal. Brutal outside. Yeah. I mean, even in here, it's a little warm. It was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so a little background. Danny is a performance artist, burlesque dancer, one of the members of and current stage manager for the Scream Queens Gorlesque Troupe. And also love horror events in general, right? Yes. Yes. All nice. the performance aspect of love horror events. Nice. Yeah. Uh, if anybody is not from the Sacramento area, basically the Scream Queens are Northern California's horror-based burlesque, drag, and variety show troupe. And I can personally attest to the fact that their shows are always a bloody good time. <laughs> uh, are there any events coming up that you would like to promote while we're on the topic? Yeah. This will be coming out friday so it'll be right before okay so then saturday uh july 22nd is it 22nd i don't know what day it is anymore uh yeah we have uh screen queens gorlesque presents freak show cabaret so it is a dark circus themed show and so we'll have obviously our normal gorlesque uh drag we have pole we have comedy and we even have some sideshow coming out nice nice okay cool very excited for it it's gonna be a fucked up show (laughs) (laughs) looking forward to it yeah can i swear (laughs) oh yeah definitely definitely it's uh when we talk about the topics we talk about on this show you have to swear sometimes because it's just it's all fucked up yeah yeah so uh just a few little questions uh so when did you first uh start performing in general uh let alone with the scream queens um so I kind of fell into this, surprisingly enough. Um, I, From when I was a kid, I always loved watching performances. I always knew that, like, in some aspect, I wanted to do something creative. I just didn't know what. Um, when I was younger, I was really searching for an outlet. So I actually I came back from a trip back in 2017, and my friends um, were hosting this very, very small, like, drag burlesque show at this, like, tiny little golf bar called heart lounge that i used to bartend at up in placerville and they were like hey our we're starting to do more of our shows like do you want to be our stage kitten and i was like sure what the fuck is that (laughs) (laughs) and they're like oh you basically just like pick up the clothes from one act and like make sure like the props are set up for the next act i was like oh yeah it's easy i can do that all of a sudden i was like writing the set list, like stage managing, but didn't really know I was stage managing (laughs) back then. Um, I mean, this bar was super small. Like our capacity was like 45 people. Uh, It was very, very small. Um, And I was starting to like kind of write acts because I was like, oh, I have an idea for this song and I would like help with choreography. And so I just stage kittened um, and stage managed in a way for a while, did that for like a year. And then I finally wrote an act for somebody, but I couldn't decide who I wanted to give it to. And then I was like, you know, I think I want to do this one. Nice. And everybody was like trying to get me to do an act for a really long time. And I was like, no, no, I could never do it. And so I did it. And then I was, I've been in love with it ever since. Nice. So throughout that time, we kind of established Screen Queens Gorlesque. So I'm actually like one of the co-founders of Screen Queens I thought I had seen that. Yeah. 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 And so that's how it started in this tiny little golf bar called Heart (laughs) Lounge that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, m- I remember you guys' shows at Knobs and Knockers too. Yeah, I loved we that We went to place. Knobs and Knockers afterwards. Oh, yeah. we love Knobs. I yeah. <laughs> miss that place so much. Yeah. Sadly, the owner decided to like 
uh, get rid of the business. And yeah. She moved to Vegas, actually. Yeah, well, and then, like, so we went to the to the place after the new guy opened up. And we were, yeah. like, talking to him. And we are like, hey, so, like, you gonna host these shows still? And he's like, yeah, no, that's not my kind of scene. Like, he seemed Yeah, we very... tried with Honey and the Trap Cat. <laughs> yeah, he seemed very, very close to it. And I was like, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it was honestly such a rad venue. And yeah. we were really sad to lose it. Yeah. But... But, I mean, the, colon- was the Colonial's cool. cool. Yeah, we love the Colonial. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, bar shows and theater shows, you know, are just so different. Um, yeah. But the Colonial's are home. All of our shows are at the Colonial now. Um, and we love it. The Colonial owners are family essentially nice. we've been working with them for years and they've got a really rad crew as well and we all know each other and work well together nice. and i'm very fortunate to be there right on yeah. uh so when did the scream queens officially form um 2017 oh wow it, so like yeah, the same year actually, so it moved pretty quick it moved very fast yeah our yeah. first like quote-unquote scream queen show is actually october uh 2017 i I want to say it was Halloween night. Oh, wow. I have the poster somewhere. <laughs> I keep the posters from every single show I've ever that's, done. That's so I have cool. the very large pile. <laughs> um, eventually, when I have a big enough place, I want to frame all of them right. and like, do something cool with it. Just, but... Or just like wallpaper the entire wall with them. Right? Yeah. yeah. I don't want to write them, though. Some of them, like, I don't yeah. know if I could reprint. Yeah, because once they're the wallpapered, that's permanent. Yeah, and yeah. I don't have the files for them anymore, oh, yeah. some of those. Yeah. But yeah, so since 2017, so we're about to be six years old. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right. Um, and then obviously, you know, um, you got to do a show with the Boulay brothers. Um, that was that's amazing. Iconic, amazing. I'm so glad I got to be there for that. Yeah. Um, Fun fact about that. Yeah. Um, we were actually supposed to do that show before COVID. No way. Yeah. Um, they actually, I guess, like heard of us somehow. <laughs> I don't know how. Right. And, um, yeah, our producer Tim was like, hey, like, you want to do a show with the Boulay Brothers? And I was like, shut the fuck up. Right. Please. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, yes. A million times. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, whatever it takes. Um, and, you know, and it was actually the same. 2020 was supposed to be a huge year. We were going to have Samwell for Pride and the Boulay Brothers for Halloween. And then, you know, lockdown yeah. hit and everything went tits up. And yeah. so we were just like, no. Um, but then last year we ended up having both of them anyway, so it really mm. worked out. But the Belize are so nice. Yeah, uh, they were honestly super rad to work with. Very nice individuals. Yeah, that's like one thing I've always wondered watching the show is like, because mm-hmm. I mean, you you've got to imagine that they're not going to be like assholes, you know? Like, well, but, in the industry, you hear things, you true, know, about but like that's the thing is like, general. yeah, that's the thing is like sometimes they tell you don't meet your heroes, you know? And right. so it was like it could have been one of those moments. But like, I'm so glad to hear that they're actually like really nice. Yeah, they were super nice. They were super thankful full for being there they were amazing to work with and it was an honor truly to nice. be like oh my god i have the billy stage on my stage but right it's just so funny too because some people are like oh you were at that boulet show and it's like that was a screen show <laughs> you're like that was our show yeah. they were at our they're show, at our show. Like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah oh jesus that was good um okay what is one of your favorite things about performing uh burlesque um really kind of the com- there's uh, i don't know if i have just one answer um okay. the community behind it honestly like i really struggled for a while to find my community to find you know quote unquote my calling or like my you know everybody has like their thing um I'm doing air quotes for people not watching. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and when I stumbled into the world of burlesque that I was like, oh, my God, this is it. (laughs) Like, this is the thing that I've been searching for for so long. And 
it's just it's a really awesome community it's a really loving community i love that you don't have to look or be a certain way burlesque is for everybody and at the end of the day what burlesque is really about is self-empowerment and that you know has helped me drastically i mean i think it's very safe to say that burlesque has saved my life in a way um and you know over the years this community that we've built you know i've had people approach us saying your shows have given me a purpose and that means more to me than anything you know like to be able to provide this community and to be given this community and the self-empowerment that I've gotten out of it and self-love. And it's also kind of awesome when you're like in a room full of 500 people, if you're at the colonial, you know, and you turn around and take your top off and there's 500 people you've never met. Like, <laughs> fuck yeah. Right. And you're just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, mean, I it, imagine. It's, it's very empowering. You get to know a lot about yourself. You get to know a lot about your strengths. Um, I know some people personally, I do like, kind of work out some shit on stage like uh definitely bring some emotional shit to stage you know it's a place to let a lot of that out yeah. and use that as a way to connect with not only your audience but your fellow performers nice all right um okay so uh, we'll get into some more questions later but i guess we'll get into the topic for the week yeah uh i normally would be dabbing with like my dab rig and all the setup but like i don't really have anything new to dab on and <laughs> uh there's a lot of coughing involved usually and so like i'm just gonna hit the pen all good. um and then i've got my little starship device that i'll probably plug into a dab rig at some point there you so go. Um, I do have for my listeners here, uh, something that is new, uh, upcoming product that, you know, one of the benefits of working in the industry is you get to have access to things before they launch. Uh, so there's a new brand coming called pure puffs and these are really strong, really potent, uh, can, uh, cannabis cartridges and they use botanical terps so you get really good strong flavors like uh we have a blueberry slushy that is amazing um and then there's the watermelon mojito which is one of my personal favorites orange pineapple tangy banana and sour mango so these will be coming to dispensaries near you in the california area soon probably next month nice so yeah all righty Now, when I asked if there was a specific true crime story or topic that you wanted to cover while you were here, you rather quickly settled on the topic, or on the tragic tale of Polly Class, because it hit pretty close to home, or at least to your hometown. Mm -hmm. So, um, why exactly, what drew you to this besides it being a hometown story? Um, well, you know, polyclass, um, for those who don't know, happened in Petaluma, California, out in the Bay Area. Um, and it's actually the town I grew up in. Um, and growing up in Petaluma, it that was just something everybody knew. It was ingrained in your childhood. It was like talked about in school, it was talked about in the community, it was just kind of in a way, a dark looming like tragedy that the community really came together on, but it also changed the community of Petaluma. I mean, Petaluma is a very, well, I don't, I shouldn't say like now, but like <laughs> back when I was growing up, it was a, it was a small cow town, you know, I mean, it's a farmer town. It's still to this day, our claim to fame is the egg capital of the world, fun fact. 
I mean, Google it. It's a thing. Gilroy has garlic. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean yeah. I don't know. I couldn't live there. I couldn't smell that all day. Um, but, you know, it was a cow town back in the day. Now it's industrialized and whatever. And people retire there and prices are spiking, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, you know, it was just, it, it really rocked the community and it changed this from like, you know, changed from a community that probably didn't lock their doors so much. I mean, polyclass happened almost a full year before I was even born. Um, but, you know, it's definitely not a community where like, oh, you got to put bars on your windows, yeah. you know, like it's a safe, small town. And, you know, growing up, it was always, did you lock your door? Like, put put a stick in the window so nobody can break in you yeah know? i remember that if you have the sliding doors yeah. you gotta have like a broom or and something it's still in there. a thing with it's something that i still do today i mean i live in <laughs> Folsom, which is not a bad area yeah. by means but you know i'm still like is there a towel in the window <laughs> <laughs> make sure you put that stick did you double lock it <laughs> well and then i mean especially if you're into true crime then your mind is on murder quite often and you're just oh, like yeah. you know what um we should make sure all the doors windows are locked and yeah. barred and yeah I I mean, no matter where you live, like people are sketch. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. But yeah, it was just it was really ingrained in your upbringing, you know, polyclass, and it's a really tragic story. Yeah, no, it seriously is, and I the thing that irritates me the most about it is that it's such a statement on the failure of the legal system and like the prison system, and like the fact that somebody like. Richard Allen Davis was even allowed mm -hmm. to be out in the first place to do this. Right. Um, which I think and I actually have in my notes. But Yeah, yeah. Paul <laughs> was his third offense. Yeah. Yeah, he was already been arrested twice for kidnapping. Yeah, well, and, and then released. there was a, and like I said, we'll get into the details, but yeah. there was like a whole crime spree after he escaped and like mm -hmm. all this other shit. And then they still were like, yeah, parole. Yeah. It's fine. <sighs> so, yeah, so... For those who may not be aware or who may just need a refresher, Polly Class was a 12-year-old girl who lived with her mother and sister in Petaluma, California until October 1st, 1993, when Richard Allen Davis entered their home, kidnapped Polly, and ultimately ended her life. I feel that one of the saddest things about this case is that it should have never happened, because in my opinion, Richard Allen Davis should never have been free to commit such a crime in the first place. And we're going to get into his past, uh, his past offenses. Mm -hmm. So on September 24th, 1976, at 22 years old, Richard Allen Davis abducted 26-year-old Francis M. at Knife Point from the South Hayward BART station. I used to live in Hayward, Oakland. Like, I lived all around the Bay Area. So you know it. Yeah, so, like, yeah. I know this. And, like, I like I lived in Petaluma for a while. I oh, lived wow. in Marin. So, like, the whole area is super familiar. So, mm -hmm. like, when you mentioned this, I, thought, I was like, oh, shit. Like, you know? <laughs> also hitting close to home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, shit. All right. Um, but, yeah, so kidnapped her at knife point from the South Hayward BART station as she entered her car, pushing Francis into the passenger seat and placing a paper bag containing twine behind the seat Davis took her keys and drove off, claiming he would not hurt her and he needed to get away because someone was following him. I'm also going to say now that there does seem to be a consistent thread of uh, some kind of undiagnosed mental illness going on with Richard Allen Davis. Most likely. Uh, a lot of paranoia, a lot of like delusions of like being followed or chased or, you know, stuff like that. His jam seems to be at knife point, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, and I forgot to mention all of the 
information for this week's episode comes directly from court case files and documents, so it's as accurate as I could possibly get. So, um, Davis, who smelled of alcohol, hit Frances on the head and told her to stop crying. He eventually pulled over and (laughs) exposed his flaccid penis. But as he tried to push Francis' he- uh, head down to his crotch, she grabbed the blade of his knife with one hand, used her other hand to open the door, and ran from the car. Survival instinct on point. On point. That's right? final girl. <laughs> final girl right fucking, yeah. <laughs> Survival instincts. Uh, Francis flagged down a passing car, which happened to be occupied by an off-duty California Highway Patrolman who chased Davis down and arrested him. Like, talk about luck, too. Like, you just happened right. you to, happen to, to find, find a, a cop. CHP. <laughs> He's like, well, I'm off the clock, but I guess. Right. You know? Jesus. And the fact that he was even let go after that. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, no. It's terrible. Davis later told a court-appointed psychiatrist, Dr. George Panomareff. Panomareff? Anyway, that he had attacked Francis because he heard a voice of a woman wondering what it would like to be raped. So this is where I'm like, okay. the, the mental illness yeah. thing. He hears voices, like all of this, you know. Well, I'm like 22, male. It's, you could be entering a schizophrenic episode. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah, actually. I didn't even think about That's that. That's when it starts to show. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Davis. Yeah, I have a BA in psychology. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, it helps a lot, actually, when you, especially when you're into true crime and horror, you know. I know, I can't get mad at people because I'm like, ah, but you're like that because <laughs> well, and rationalized that's, That shit. is one of the things, and it's, well, I don't think that it rationalizes anything, and I don't think that it justifies anything, but I definitely do think that we need to be more aware that a lot of these people suffer from mental illness, and that's what plays into it. And yeah. so if we would address mental illness more in this country then maybe we wouldn't have Richard Allen Davis or John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, mm-hmm. da- you know, David Berkowitz, Charles Manson. Like I can, I can look at the wall here. Right. Ow, damn it. I can okay. I got a funny bone. Yeah. Back I got to, I got to move away from the table. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I just feel like this is a point for mental health awareness as well. 1000%. Yeah. I mean, I'm working the mental health field as my day job. So like, yeah. We're always like mental health matters, like normalized therapy. Go to therapy. Everybody needs therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I need to start going back to therapy. The last therapist I tried, um, I think she was like Ukrainian or something. So there's a bit of a language barrier. And like she was also That's very anti weed. And I'm like, you know, yeah. I don't. Therapy shopping is like a job within itself. Yeah. Like therapist shopping. Yeah. It takes forever. But once you find a good one, yeah. you find them. Yeah. Um, Okay, so he heard the voice, right? Davis also stated that Francis wanted it and was only protesting for the sake of appearance, which is like typical disgusting male right. BS. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Um, of course, the train wreck isn't over yet. Three months later, in December of 1976, Davis faked a suicide attempt in order to be transferred to Napa State Hospital, where it would be easier to attempt an escape. Yeah. After making his escape, he began a days-long crime spree, 
when on December 16th, Davis broke into the Napa home of Marjorie Mitchell and beat her on the head with a fireplace poker while she slept. Jeez. Yeah, it gets it gets rough. After she screamed, Davis dropped the poker and walk out, walked out of the room. Mitchell, her head bleeding, went to the bathroom to get a towel and saw him standing at the end of the hallway. Mitchell began walking towards him, but he fled. Number one, the fact that she had the courage to walk towards him after right. that, I'm like, all right, cool. She's like, not today. <laughs> she's like, she's like bleeding, just pouring blood from her head. Right. And she's like, you, come here. I would run too. Yeah. <laughs> Davis later told police that he was surprised Mitchell was still alive. He said he had intended to look for her car keys, but he forgot about the keys after he hit her. Davis explained that he had hit her to relieve tension and that committing violent acts was, quote, how he relieved tension. Oof. He's quoted as saying, it felt good. I felt glowing. We both got something out of it. Oh, that made me cringe. That literally yeah. made me cringe. That's like spine tingle right uh, there. Yeah. So that was a, a quote he had said to Dr. Panomareff. Panomareff. Yeah. We're just going to do our best on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I that I have a, a running. Just, he's a creep. Yeah. He definitely he's like he's definitely creep. a sexual predator. He's yeah. a creep. He's just violent for no reason. Definitely not should be out on the streets. For yeah. any reason, like if anything, he should be in a mental health care facility, like getting treatment or anything yeah. like that. But he should definitely have been in prison still. Yeah. Well, and again, this is, you know, the 70s. True. So. True. I mean, the heyday, the golden age of right. crime. But I mean, look at what 10 years ago, what mental health awareness looked like compared to today. You know, I mean, think about also 50, true. 60 years so, ago. Oh God. And it's so weird to think that that's 50, 60 years ago now. The <laughs> like, 90s were 10 years ago. Like, I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I, I, that's how I feel. I'm like, I'm stuck in the 90s. I'm wearing a freaking all, all real monsters shirt, you know, like. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's weird to think that it was that long ago. I just got a 90s cartoon tattoo like last weekend. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's very itchy right now. <laughs> Which cartoon? Oh, I got him from the Powerpuff Girls. Oh, my God. Like yes. The way that I'm sitting. But... Oh, my God. Yes. That's great. <laughs> um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Okay. On December 20th, 1976, Davis broke into 40-year-old Hazel Frost's car, pointed a shotgun at her neck, and told her to drive to Santa Rosa. Number one, where is he getting these shotguns and, like... Right. It, Again, 70s. Right. Probably I was way, like, I, way I, easier to get a gun back I cannot then. speak to what gun control looked like in the 70s. Yeah, no. <laughs> there wasn't gun control in the right. 70s. Uh, after a half hour drive, he ordered her into a dark gas station and he pulled out white tape or gauze from his pocket. Frost rolled out of the car, grabbing a gun she kept underneath the seat. Again, these survival instincts are so on point with he some of these people. He keeps fucking with the wrong bitch. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> just, he keeps picking the final girl yeah. and thinking he's going to get away with it. Right. Um, so she grabs the gun, and as Davis flees, she fires four or five times at him. He later told police that he wanted Frost's car to get to San Mateo County and told Dr. Pan Panomareff... That before his attack on Frost, he had again heard the voice of a woman wondering, what would it like to be kidnapped and assaulted? He told another court-appointed psychiatrist that he had decided he would, quote, have 
some fun with the lady and assumed that from her attire and her single status that she was looking for the same. Uh, okay. It's like the just strictest definition of rape culture right there. Yeah. Like clothing does not mean you're asked for it. Nobody's fucking asking for it. No, Come on. No, nobody's asking for it. Nobody deserves it. No. Nobody wants it. Nope. Anyway. On December 21st, 1976, Josephine Krieger, a bank employee, returned returned to her La Honda home in San Mateo County and discovered that it had been ransacked with some of her jewelry and coins missing. Responding police officers found Richard Allen Davis hiding under a bush with an unloaded shotgun on the ground next to him and two knives on his person. Davis admitted he had burglarized Krieger's home. So, was the shotgun even loaded the first time when he tried to... <laughs> you just walk around with a fucking empty right? gun. Right? <laughs> and then, like, so I mean, when Chick had fair, a... when if she... somebody points a gun at me, I'm not going to be like, hold on, let me check right. this. Let him be like, okay. <laughs> that ain't loaded. Right. You ain't going to do it. <laughs> right. I'm not going to, like... I'm not trying to find flaunt out. Flaunt death in that way, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had impulsive thoughts before, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway... Uh, da, 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 da. He explained that he had intended to wait for the residents to return home, at which time he planned to tie them up and steal their car, but that he gave up on the plan when more people than he expected came home. I was about to say, like, how many people are you waiting for? <laughs> right. He's like, I just need, like, a good two people. Just, like, like just, a, just a I solid couple. Them. I'll right. take two people, tie them up, steal their car. Right. Oh, there's three people? I gotta go. <laughs> Fuck them out. <laughs> It sounds like it's all very randomized. Like, he's it, definitely not, yeah, like, there's, stalking people. Yeah, there's no, I don't think on. there, I think it's very much crimes of opportunity for him. It's just like, oh, hey, I'm here, and I want this car. So he just left with the shotgun for the day, and he's walking around the neighborhood like, yeah, that house looks cool. Yeah, basically. Like, yeah, and, and then, like, Richard Ramirez was super random like that, too. Like, there was yeah. no method there was no like it wasn't like stalking his yeah. victims to like learn their routine or which is ironic like because he was called the night stalker right <laughs> <laughs> um davis later also told dr panona dr panona fuck the doctor he told the doctor <laughs> that he thought there were people inside dr. The, p. <laughs> yeah, dr p he told dr p that he thought there were people inside the krieger home who wanted to be tied up oh. um I mean, you could at least ask him first. Consent's a thing. Yeah, consent yeah. is sexy. You know? yeah. And mandatory. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Davis told a court-appointed psychiatrist that he masturbates twice daily while thinking of the female victims of his past crimes and that he imagines tying them up. Again, not somebody that should be roaming the streets of anywhere for any reason. We, at this point, are far beyond, like, three strikes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I feel like at this point they should just put him away. Right. Just never let him out. Dude's got issues. Somebody get him help. Yeah. Yeah. Yet, despite this crime spree and his clear pattern of violent and sexually aggressive behavior, Richard Allen Davis was paroled on June 27th, 1993. In early July 1993, Davis, uh, Davis gained admission into the Turning Point shelter in San Mateo. For a second, I thought this was Turning Point, which is like the drug treatment program in the 
Bay Area. There's also a turning point in Sacramento, and there used to be a Tahoe turning point. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, because like I know, I don't that know if they're all connected. But I, well, this one says it's a transitional housing facility for the homeless, whereas like I know the, it's the same services the Sacramento one does. And yeah, they do, but they, I know that the like one therapy. in San Francisco was like super intense. Right. Like I remember, I because I was in Walden House out there. Oh, okay. And so there was a guy that was in Turning Point, and he was like, "Dude, that place tears you apart." Like there's this thing they do where like they put a chair in the middle of the circle of people and then like you sit in that chair like if you fucked up or something and like they they just tear into you and berate you and like tell you everything that's wrong with you because their whole concept is like you have to break these people down as a person before you can build them back up. (sighs) Yeah. Not the proper therapeutic approach (laughs) by any means, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 90s. (laughs) Actually, this was 2009, 2010. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, But apparently this is just a homeless shelter. While at Turning Point, he initially worked at a precision sheet metal company and later as a painter. On the weekend of August 21st to 23rd, Davis took a bus visit or took a bus to visit his sister and brother-in-law, Darlene and Richard Schwann, who lived on the Coyote Valley Indian Reservation in Ukiah. The bus stopped at a depot in Petaluma near Walnut Park and Wickersham Park. Wickersham Pack or Park? It says Pack, but I think... I don't think there's... Oh, no, Wickersham Park, yeah. They're like two blocks away from each other. Which were frequented by transients and drug users. Still a fact. (laughs) This is when Davis first starts to appear in Petaluma. That same weekend, Davis bought Richard Schwann's 1979 Ford Pinto hatchback, after which he quit his job. He used the car to make several trips to Ukiah to visit the Schwanns from September through November 1993. At least four witnesses saw Davis loitering around Walnut Park and Wickersham Park in Petaluma during August and September of 1993. He stood out because of his disheveled appearance, his yellow headband, his heavily tattooed arms, public drinking, and his peppered gray hair and beard. So definitely a, a noticeable guy. Yeah, not your... Back then, I also I also just picture like this like super dirty greasy yellow headband that like he never takes yeah. off and then like he's just got like this gross hair that like ugh. like it used to be bright yellow but now it's kind of dingy yeah yeah it's just like and then just like everything about him is dingy like, yeah it's just a good way to describe well, I mean, his court him. pictures don't look too great so yeah no definitely he was not a not a great looking guy he just looked disheveled and he looked like a hot mess <laughs> yeah he was a hot mess. I guess mess. prison will do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On either September 30th or October 1st, 1993, Davis entered the Seductions Adult Store in Ukiah and bought a blue Rough Rider condom that the proprietor, Jeanette Turner, was pretty sure was studded or ribbed. Seems random now, but this will come into play later in the story and during the trial. Mm-hmm. Now that we have laid the background of what kind of a piece of work that Richard Allen Davis was, let's talk about the night that poor little Polly Class was taken from her home. (sighs) This is such a heavy story. I know, it's so (laughs) intense. I was like, damn, I picked a depressing as fuck topic. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was just uh, like, that's the one I know that like right? well. <laughs> well, and like that's like that's why I always like to ask people if there's a topic that they really want to cover because that's when I get to hear you know other perspectives of a case that somebody's like really you know knowledge about knowledgeable yeah. about or passionate about. Well, it was a really influential case and yeah. so many facets really. Yeah. People and I think that like a lot of people don't really even know about it. Right. And that's where we had discussed that, where it was like, you know, I'm sure if you mentioned the name to most people now, they wouldn't know who you were talking about. Oh, yeah. I mean, unless they... Damn near 30 years ago now. Yeah, exactly. And that's... God, it's so weird. <laughs> uh, been dealing a lot with, like, age crisis lately, you know, where you're just like, oh, my God, I was born in the last century. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I work with kids, and they're like, oh, you were born in the 1900s. Right. I'm oh, like, my God. Fuck you. <laughs> The end of the 1900s, yeah, I'm okay? Like, don't talk to me like that. I am your elder. <laughs> <laughs> That's like I always claim to be a 90s kid, even though I was born in 89. Because like I was born in October of 89, so uh -huh. it's like as close to the end as the you're on the cusp. You know, yeah, so, yeah, I'm a cusp. There we go. I'm a 90s baby cusp. All right. <laughs> I was born in the 90s, so yeah. I'm like, eh, 90s baby is fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then like that's how I would say is like, all right, well, you know, I was born in the 80s, but the 90s raised me. You know. Yep. So. Yep. Um, okay. Eve Nickel lived with her daughters, 12-year-old Polly Class and 6-year-old Annie, in a small three-bedroom house in Petaluma near Walnut Park and Wickersham Park. On Friday, October 1st, 1943, Polly had a slumber party at her home with two classmates, 12-year-old Katie M. and Jillian P. J oh, Jillian. My bad. <laughs> Jillian arrived between 7 and 7.15. After a few minutes, she and Polly walked to a nearby convenience store, bought popsicles, and returned home. Their walk took them past Wickersham Park. Just before Kate arrived, Jillian and Polly went out to the front doorstep to wait for Kate. Between 8 and 9 p.m., Kate arrived with her mother. As Kate's mother got back into her car, which was blocking the sidewalk, she saw a man walking straight at her vehicle as if he was going to crash into it, so she jerked her car forward. The man wore dark clothing. He had rather bushy gray-brown hair, possibly swept back in a ponytail, and he was carrying something that looked like a bag. 13-year-old Kamika Milstead, a nearby resident, had also seen this man get out of his car and head down the same sidewalk carrying a bag or box. Meanwhile, the three girls played in Polly's bedroom. As Halloween was a few weeks away, Kate, who was dressed as a hippie, and Jillian applied makeup to Polly's face to make her look dead. That didn't Oof. age well. No. Yeah, mm. no. Uh, Polly later changed into a white cotton denim skirt and a pink blouse that was tied in a, into a knot in front. I mean, it's the 90s. Yeah, Everybody yeah. wanted to be Britney Spears. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. Britney, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and removed most of the makeup. Around 10 p.m., Nickel told the girls not to stay up too late and to keep the noise down as she and Annie were going to bed. Nichols, uh, Nichols went to her bedroom, which was separated from Polly's bedroom, by a bathroom and another bedroom. She read in bed for a few minutes with Annie next to her, and she and Annie then fell asleep. There are a few articles that um, say that the mom might have taken some sleeping medication or mm -hmm. prescription pills that might have prevented her from waking up, but... I don't really feel like this is f 
I mean, granted, you probably shouldn't take sleeping medication when you're having a sleepover with other people's kids in your house. That's valid. But I also feel like there's no guarantee that even if she hadn't taken those pills, she would have heard anything. Some people are just deep sleepers. I I slept through a really big earthquake when I was a little baby. I slept through a tornado when I was a kid. I I, slept through a 5.6 earthquake. Yeah. Like, I sleep like the dead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm like, gotta make sure my shit's locked. Right. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, I won't know somebody's coming to kill me. (laughs) Also, my neighbors are stupid loud, so I would just be like, oh, it's the neighbor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, See, where was I? Right, so the pills things. Okay, so from 10 p.m. to 10.30, the girls played board games and video games. Around the same time, nearby resident Talia Miller was returning from a movie with her uncle. As her uncle was about to drop her off, Talia saw a man carrying a duffel bag and walking towards her house. Because Talia was leery of the homeless people, she asked her uncle to wait until the, quote, scary-looking man passed the car. Mm. As he passed, he looked into the car and slid his hand over his face as if to conceal it. The man was wearing dark clothing. He had combed back collar-length dark hair and a gray-patched beard. Around this same time, Sean Bush, Aaron Thomas, and Thomas's girlfriend were watching a movie in Thomas's granny unit behind Polly's home. So definitely a lot of people saw him in the area. Like, right, like the, creeping for hours. Yeah, the description matches point on the peppered gray hair, the disheveled appearance, like the the this was Richard Allen Davis, no denying it. Right. Here's what I I have an issue with this next one though. So it says while Bush smoked a cigarette in Thomas's doorway, he could see Thomas's bathroom, which was separately located on Nichols' back porch. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out like the housing setup here right. to where like this dude's bathroom is on somebody else's porch. Well, like the property, because I mean, Klaus's house was on 4th Street and the properties, they're old homes over there. A lot of that neighborhood's like old Victorian homes, yeah. old craftsmen, you know, a lot of them have grand units and like okay. typically they're all just kind of intertwined and like the property lines are weird okay yeah okay I know so that makes that well. makes a little more sense yeah too. It's, it's one of those just like old neighborhoods you know where it was probably back in the day because i mean petaluma has a river that runs through it you know it was probably a mining area at some yeah. point and you know a lot of things have come through there so i'm sure True. at some point it was just like houses for employees or slaves or god knows what <laughs> all of the above yeah okay so that makes a lot more sense as far as like figuring out the layout here but I still have an issue with the fact that this dude just is like, meh. Yeah. So he saw. OK, so at about 1030 p.m., Bush saw the same man that everyone else had seen walking calmly and slowly up the stairs towards Thomas's bathroom. When the man noticed Bush looking at him, he turned his head away and reached for the bathroom door. Bush described the man as stocky with very thick and wiry hair that was styled straight back and lighter on top than the bottom. Unaware that anything unusual was occurring, Bush resumed watching the movie. Some dude just walked up your stairs and like reached for the bathroom. Like, that's fucking weird. Right. It's like, it doesn't (laughs) matter. And like, especially if it is the bathroom for your granny unit. So like, if you don't know that guy, there's no reason for him to be going there right like some rando is on your property and you're just like ah yeah whatever 
trying to watch Pulp Fiction, man. Right. You know? Jeez. Uh, meanwhile, the girls decided to set up their sleeping bags. When Polly opened the bedroom door to retrieve the sleeping bags, she discovered Davis in the doorway holding a knife and a bag. Davis said, don't scream or I'll slit your throats, and promised not to hurt them if they did what he asked. He told the girls to lie face down on the floor and not look at him. <clears throat> and it was actually, the knife he had was actually a knife from their kitchen. Oh. Yeah, supposedly. Well, and again, like, I he does. I don't does, know, like, how factual he does, that part well, is, but, but. We were saying it's always, like, crimes of opportunity where it's right. just like, oh, here's a fireplace poker. Right. You know. Yeah, because he, like, broke into their house and, like, apparently grabbed a knife from their kitchen. So it's like. Oh, jeez. just adds to level of, like, fucked up. Right. <laughs> He's like, he didn't even bring his own weapon. He was just like, um, you're going to provide your own. Right. That steak knife looks cool. Uh, Yeah. So Jillian and Kate initially thought the defendant was a friend. Oh, sorry, Davis. It says Mm -hmm. defendant in a lot of it because, yeah. yeah. Court papers. Yeah. Thought Davis was a friend of Polly and her family who was engaging in a prank. Davis asked, where are the valuables? He repeatedly told them not to be scared and that he was only doing this for the money. Which, I mean, that did seem to be, like, the motive of a lot of his crimes as well as, like, right. stealing a car or stealing something. Like, he, yeah. theft was also, like, Stealing a, jewelry and coins. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he doesn't have a job, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that he would be able to hold a job for very long. Not with how much he's getting arrested, I mean. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so apparently Davis wondered aloud why there were so many people present and expressed surprise when Polly told him that her mother was in the house. So it almost sounds like he had been kind of casing the place, you know, over time, because how would he know who's supposed to be in the house? How many people are supposed to be there? Like the fact they had a pretty like big house, like it wasn't a small little dinky thing. Yeah. So then. Why would you be surprised there's more people in the right. house? It's a big place. Man. All right. <laughs> He's like, there should only be two people here. <laughs> um, no. I mean, a lot of what he does and says does not make any sense. No, though. there's zero logic. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. Polly said that there was money in her jewelry box and asked him not to hurt her mother and sister. Davis was calm at first, but he sounded more frantic as events unfolded. All three girls lay down in a row on Polly's bedroom floor, and Davis tied their hands using a silky cloth. Uh, Cords cut from Polly's Nintendo machine and a strap from Polly's leather purse. So again, things that are on hand. Yeah. He also gagged them with silky cloths. He removed the cases from pillows in the bedroom and placed them over the girls' heads. At that point... Jillian no longer believed it was a joke. I would have thought that a long time ago. But I mean, again, yeah. you're a 12 year old girl. 12 year old girl. Uh, yeah. Like in the, in the 90s. In the 90s. But, yeah. yeah. So Davis told the girls that he was going to take Polly to show him where the valuables were and that he would then return Polly to Jillian and Kate and that he would be gone after they counted to 1,000. Davis then took Polly out of the room, promising he would not touch her. At that point, Davis had been in the bedroom for approximately 10 minutes. 
After a few minutes counting with no sign of Polly, Jillian and Kate freed themselves, went to Nichols' bedroom, and told her what had happened. After they all unsuccessfully searched for Polly around the house, Eve Nichols called 911 around 11 p.m. Nichols did not find any personal property missing from the home, but a pair of red leggings was later discovered missing from a chest of drawers in the bedroom. So this kind of invalidates his claim that he was doing it for valuables. Right. Because nothing was missing from the home. Right. Or he just got so freaked out, he's like, no, I'm kidnapping a kid. Who knows? But right. his motives were definitely twisted and fucked. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like uh, whatever mental illness he had. So it's like schizophrenia mixed with some ADHD. Right. He's just like, <laughs> I'm here to rob you. No, wait, I'm here to kidnap you. No, wait, I'm here to kill you. Right. Maybe we're going to do all of it. <laughs> Shit, you don't have any jewelry. I'm out. Oh, God. I mean, if he'd only left, that would have been, like, the best case scenario. Right. Like, why are you taking this child if you're trying to rob him? Yeah. Like, robbery to kidnapping is quite the fucking It's a jump. It's a jump. It's It's a serious jump. Yeah. You went from zero to 60 real quick. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm here for cash and jewelry. I'm just going to kidnap you instead. Like, what was going through his head? I mean, will will anybody ever know? Who knows? No. That same night, police would actually have an encounter with Richard Allen Davis. And by this point, Polly Class was not with him. Dana Jaffe lived with her 12-year-old daughter on a 192-acre parcel in Sonoma County between Santa Rosa and Sonoma on a rural hillside past the end of Pythian Road. Mm-hmm. Number one, let's talk about 192 acres. It's a lot of fucking That property. is a lot of fucking property. And, like, I don't yeah. think some people realize how much property that is. Because, like, I lived on a house with a half-acre yard, and I thought that was a huge yard. Right. I mean, that is a pretty big yard. Like, I yeah. mean, an acre is, what, roughly the size of a football field. Yeah, so it's, like, 192 acres. Yeah. That's a lot of property. And, like, Pythian Road out in Santa Rosa is, like, the cut. Yeah. (laughs) It's, like, really (laughs) deep out there. Like, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no reason to be out there unless you live out there. Yeah. Really. Especially. It's nighttime. It's not like you're going for a scenic drive. (laughs) So from its intersection with State Highway 12, Pythian Road proceeds northward. At its end is a series of steep curving and narrow private roads, one of which leads to Jaffe's home. No trespassing signs were clearly posted on the private road leading to Jaffe's property, and her house was several hundred yards past the gate. About 10.45 or 11 p.m. on October 1st, 1993, Jaffe arrived home from work and relieved her babysitter, Shannon Lynch. At about 11.15 or 11.20 p.m., Lynch began driving away from the Jaffe residence, and while still behind the gate, she saw Davis's Ford Pinto wedged against an embankment and stuck in a ditch, with Davis hunched over the rear bumper. As she drove up, Davis appeared surprised to see someone else on the darkened road. Lynch stopped her car, and Davis approached. He had bad breath and body odor with leaves embedded in his hair as if he had been caught in the brush, Mm -hmm. and he was wearing a dark-colored, long-sleeved sweatshirt that was inside out. Hmm. Sketchy. 
Right. Like the whole thing just automatically screams right. suspicious. Well, his car, yeah, his car's like in a ditch and like, why do you have leaves in your hair? Right. Like, like you've been well, running through the brush. The, the inside out sweater instantly makes me think there was like blood on it. Right. Or something. You got dressed quickly. Yeah. Or undressed and redressed quickly. Mm. Yeah, that part. She asked what he was doing and he replied, I'm stuck. I need some rope. When Lynch called... The car's in a ditch. <laughs> I mean, I guess a Pinto's not that big, but... <laughs> I mean, true. I feel like a Pinto, you probably just, like... like yank it out. Yeah. <laughs> like those movies where you just see the guy just, like, push it up. And right. Like, pick up the thing from under the car. Oh, know. my God. Uh, when Lynch called Davis illiterate for not obeying the private road signs, he placed his hand on her window, told her to get out of her car, and demanded to know what's up the road. Lynch remained in her car and told him there were people up the road who would call the police. She then drove off. Frightened and upset, Lynch quickly drove to the nearest payphone because remember, this is 1993. You can't just call her on your cell phone. Right. Nobody has a cell phone. Uh, drove to the nearest payphone and at 11.24 p.m. called Jaffe, urging her to call the police about a scary guy on her hill. Concerned about being alone with her young daughter, Jaffe dressed and got into her car with her daughter. Mm -hmm. As they drove down their private road, they saw Davis's car, but saw no one on the road. Jaffe drove to a payphone and called the police at 11.46 p.m. Some 15 minutes later, Sonoma County Sheriff's deputies Mike Rankin and Thomas Howard arrived in separate cars and met Jaffe at the intersect intersection of Pythian Road and Highway 12. Because the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department used different radio frequencies, deputies Rankin and Howard were unaware of Polly's abduction. Jaffe led the officers back up the road where they found Davis leaning against his car, smoking a cigarette. Not a care in the world. And it's like so weird that like, so she drove out, he's not there. Right. Drives out, meets the cops, comes back, and he's there. Right. And it's so, like, why are you just chilling, smoking a cigarette, dude? Yeah. Like. <sighs> well, and the whole interaction between him and the cops is just kind of like. Oh, God. It's painful. Yeah. It's painful. Like, there's so many signs. Yeah. So many things that are wrong with it. So many things that the cops should have asked about or looked into. Mm -hmm. They should have at least ran his fucking name. They did. They but, actually ran him, and he came up clear. No warrants, no anything. But he was and on was, parole. Right. And, like, but, like, they ran him, and nothing came up, and that's why they were just like, oh, they just did, like, a field interrogation oh, report geez. and submitted that, and, like, that was it. But, like, he's sitting there brushing, like, twigs and leaves and shit in his hair. It's, they said it's it was, like, a really cool night. I mean, it's October in the Bay Area. It's yeah. nice and cool at night. And... Like, he's sweating profusely. <laughs> like, he's, like, not coherent. He's dirty, sweaty. Right. And know. he actually had an open container of alcohol in the car, which was the only violation they saw. But because he wasn't actively driving, they just made him dump it out. And then, like, they he dumped it out in front of them. And then they were like, all right, get the fuck out of here. Like, so much. <laughs> well, and, like. Again, a running theme back then, especially with the police, was like they just didn't think to to follow through on some of these things or right. to like to do the the digging or the 
you know, there's there was plenty of times where Ramirez should have been caught, and mm-hmm. there's plenty of times where fucking Bundy should have been caught. Yep. And like there's all these times where it's like they had interactions with the police at really, really prime moments that could have been crucial to stopping them. Yeah. I think even uh Dahmer, like there was multiple yeah, times where Dahmer, Dahmer should, should have, have been, been caught. caught and they just let him like go. the what was it, like the 16 year old kid where or the 14 year old kid where he's like oh no this is my 19 year old boyfriend right like and they were just like that is a child they were just like uh we just don't want to deal with it because like they're gay yeah oh okay it's yeah. a gay thing yeah so stupid <sighs> okay so do 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 jaffe told davis he was on posted private property Davis acknowledged the signs, but claimed that he had tried to turn and become stuck in the ditch. Leaves, twigs, and other debris were in his hair and clinging to his socks. Okay, that's also like, super you've sketchy. You've been up in it. You were all up in the woods <laughs> doing something. Yeah, just like trying to get your car out. Yeah, and he was wearing a yellow and blue striped long-sleeved button-down shirt, so he's lost the hood, the sweater by this point. Right. Jaffe told him the officers would help him, and she went home. Deputies Howard and Rankin spoke to Davis, who smelled of alcohol and appeared to be sweating profusely. Deputy Rankin patted Davis down and noticed that Davis's pants were wet, but his shirt was not. Again, red flag. Like, what's going on here? He's just standing here waving the red flags, and they're just like, oh, he's doing a ribbon dance. Right. (laughs) Oh, wow. He's doing a fan dance for us. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> oh, man. So, Davis asked the officers, what the fuck are you guys doing here? And Rankin explained that the property owner wanted him removed for trespassing. Davis claimed he was passing through the area from Oakland on the way to see a relative in Redwood Valley and had pulled off road to do some sightseeing. At 11 something at, at night, night and you're in the cut on the 12, which like Highway 12 is off. Like, I mean, it intersects with 101, but the section that he's at is not necessarily like a rock and a skip, you yeah. know, like. <laughs> he claimed that he had tried placing dirt or brush under his car's wheels to get traction. The deputies, however, saw very little indication of any dirt or other debris placed under the wheels. Deputy Rankin ran a check of defendant's license plate, but he transposed some of them, the numbers and did not notice that the car was not registered to, the, to Davis. Davis said he was not on parole and had never been to prison. Liar. <laughs> liar. You damn dirty liar. For all. <laughs> <sighs> Although the defendant smelled of alcohol, Deputy Howard did not think that he was intoxicated based on the deputy's observations of Davis's pupils, balance, and speech. During a consent search of Davis's Pinto, the deputies found a paper bag on the floorboard with three or four unopened Budweiser beard cans, as well as two bags containing clothes, some of which appeared to be torn. Hmm. Hmm. Weird. See, I thought the containers were open. I guess well, they were unopened. as the two deputies discussed ways to free Davis's car and made unsuccess- unsuccessful attempts to the effect, Davis became more relaxed. At one point, Davis opened a can of beer and began drinking it, but Deputy Rankin told him <laughs> to pour it out. Help me get my car out so I can drive away. Also, let me chuck this beer in front of you. Yeah, me. let me like, drink what? this beer so I can get in my car and drive away. <laughs> There's zero 
zero logic in any of He's his He's like, approach, so you weren't really. gonna get me for the DUI, but now you can. Right. <sighs> After borrowing a chain from the property owner, Jaffe, the two deputies pulled Davis's car off of the embankment and out of the ditch. While Deputy Howard returned Jaffe's chain, Deputy Rankin escorted... Rankin escorted Davis as he drove down Pythian Road to Highway 12. When both deputies drove onto Highway 12 from Pythian Road, they saw Davis parked near the intersection. At 12.46 a.m. on Saturday, October 2nd, 1993, deputies cleared the incident with dispatch. Like, just (sighs) so, so, so much right there. And I get, like... From what I know, they, you know, the deputies were also trying to get Gaffey to press charges for trespassing, but she was like, nah, I just don't want anything to do with it. Just get him the fuck out. Yeah, just get him out of here. Like, essentially, you know, it's probably not exactly what she said, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, you know, like they were even pushing for her to like press charges, like do this, this dude's on your property, you know, but like, she's like, nah, that, uh, again, like another incident where he could have been stopped potentially. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially if they had thought to question him further or at least look into the surrounding area, because, like, clearly he was off of the road doing something. Right. And, like, she wasn't in the car. Yeah. So, like, he had stashed her body, supposedly in the brush nearby. Yeah. So if they had just looked around or, Mm -hmm. you know, like, just just a little deeper. (sighs) So much could have been avoided. Yeah, seriously. Like so much. Um, well, I think this is a good time to take a little break. Uh, <laughs> ask a couple more questions that are unrelated to to Moida. And um, yeah, and then we'll get back into it. Yeah, it's a pretty heavy topic. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, okay, so obviously the Scream Queens being a horror-based kind of uh, deal... How long have you been a horror movie lover and aficionado? Um, not really super long. Like, I mean, I think people would probably assume forever, but (laughs) actually when I was like younger, like a kid, I, I hated horror movies. Fun fact. Um, I, it was too much for me. Um, but as I got older, I started to get really into it. The first horror movie I actually ever saw was Halloween. Okay. Uh, so I have, I have a very deep rooted love for Michael, you know, because right. uh, that was one of the first horror series I ever got into, and then I remember um, flipping through, you know, movie channels back when that was more of a thing. I don't know. <laughs> some people still have cable. Um, <laughs> I think it's one of the things I miss about cables, like movie channels. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I was flipping through movie channels, and I came across this movie, and I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" You know, we didn't even have like TV Guide back then, you know. So I was like. I had no idea what this movie was called that I was watching, but it was, I was like, this movie's fucked up. Da, da, da. Turns out it was House of a Thousand Corpses. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know yes. what it was called. And I just knew that like randomly at this Rob time Zombie. of night, yes. this movie would come on and I fell in love with it. And I was like, this movie's fucked up. Uh, yeah. Rob Zombie. Yeah. Iconic. Um, yeah. You know, I love that he puts his wife in everything. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. I saw but this. But, I mean, uh, if my wife was Sherry Moon, I'd put her in everything, <laughs> right. too. I saw this, uh, this like, meme, and it was, like, a comic strip of this, like, executive board meeting. Uh-huh. And they're all sitting around talking, and they're like, 
Yeah, so I, I'm really excited to hear about his new movie. I just I just really hope he doesn't put his fucking wife in it. <laughs> and then the other guy goes, yeah, he puts her in fucking everything. Yeah, and, and then he comes in and he's like, it. all right, so Sherry's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, she's great. Whatever. Yeah. Haters are going to hate. Right. And, I um, honestly. Have... But those were kind of my first two movies, nice. you know. I have honestly kind of loved everything Rob Zombie's done. Yeah, I mean, no no hate on John Carpenter, but I Rob Zombie's Halloween is my absolute favorite. I mean, I, annihilated it. Yeah. Just absolutely annihilated it. Yeah, I, Very disappointed with the last two Halloweens, personally. Yeah. I don't care if I get hate for that. They weren't my favorite. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I just, I was kind of like, eh. Halloween kills and Halloween ends. Halloween or some ends, shit yeah. yeah. Me and my last roommate went to go see Halloween Ends, and we left the theater, and we just talked shit about it for the whole, like, 20-minute drive home. <laughs> We're just like, dude, it's so fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, no, there was a lot of... It was of... just kind of disappointing. I don't know. It didn't It didn't have the same vibe, yeah. you know? Like, there was so many points, and Jamie Lee Curtis is the ultimate final girl, you know? I love me some Jamie Lee, but I don't know. It just, it just didn't hit for me. No, especially because like for I think what was it like a good chunk of the movie she's not even like doing anything she's like stuck in a hospital or yeah some shit. she's like, so it's like she's like all laid up right and I'm like, so it's Where's like Jamie Lee? it's supposed to be like Jamie Lee versus Michael yeah you know? like, this was supposed to be the the final showdown yeah yeah I, I, yeah eh, not not my favorite one no. not my favorite one but Rob Zombies was. the best but yeah those were kind of the first two horror movies that i ever watched and then like slowly got into it you know i went 80 slashers are always a jam so like obviously i love me some jason i love freddy you know all of that scream ghostface is like one of my favorites it's just utterly ridiculous (laughs) right um i have a true love for movies that are just so fucking ridiculous like as much as i love horror my jam is like really shitty action movies <laughs> uh, i was about to say i will speaking, watch them speaking on really shitty horror movies and like really ridiculous movies have you ever seen the greasy strangler no oh my I god i don't think i've ever heard of that uh, okay so <laughs> unfortunately it is one of the weirdest like cringiest like movies that we have ever watched okay like me and ashley we uh stumbled upon it one day oh those are the best and it's like what the fuck is that so the film style is like very like 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 not like good not like it's it's intentionally badged like camera work and okay. it's just like very like grainy and like old school feel to mm-hmm. it and it's about this guy who lives with his dad right and he's like this big like loser nerd kind of guy okay. that just like has no self-esteem doesn't stand up for himself and his dad's just this like old crotchety guy right stereotypical character yeah, yeah. well and yeah. that's the thing it's like it's very like ridiculous and stereotypical in some ways but like then it just gets like a sharp left turn into what the fuck are we watching <laughs> um so there, apparently there's this murderer out called the greasy strangler and he you know, it just sounds gross yeah so <laughs> There's the opening scene basically is the kid and his dad or the guy and his dad and like he's making breakfast for his dad or whatever mm-hmm. and his dad just keeps asking him to put more grease in everything. He's like, I want grease in my coffee. And he's like, I, I need more grease. Give me more grease. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, dad. <laughs> okay, dad. I'll, I'll give you more grease. And he's like, I bet you think I'm the greasy strangler now, don't you? And the kid's like. Not what I was thinking at all, but like now I'm kind of like, huh? Not the direction I was going. <laughs> now you mention it, right? And so it just, uh, it. 
I'll have to look it up. Yeah, you'll have to look it up. And I'm sorry that I I made you look it up. (laughs) There's, yeah, there's definitely some really random scenes. Yeah. yeah, I I will have to put that on my watch list because it sounds utterly ridiculous and horrible. Although I cannot stop quoting it. I have used That's sound. I have used sound clips from uh, from it in my episodes. Oh my god! Because yes. there's this scene where him and his dad are arguing with each other, and he's like, "Bullshit artist!" And he's like, "You're a bullshit artist!" And he's like, "You're a bullshit artist!" And he's all B U L L S H I T A R T I S T. What's that spell? Bullshit artist! And it's just so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> You're just like, what are we watching? Yeah. Somebody approved this. Yeah, like, somebody wrote this. Somebody thought this was a good idea, and then somebody made it. Whenever I watch shit like that, I always am, like, thinking, somebody went into a boardroom. <laughs> <laughs> and pitched With this, this idea. Pitched it. And these people in the room were like, yes. Sold. Fucking let's do it. <laughs> How much money do you need? Here's a blank check, you know? And oh, it's but fuck. it's usually like low budget. True. Have you it ever definitely seen was. Velocipaster? I I've seen it on the streaming site. I have not watched it. It is so fucking bad. <laughs> like <laughs> you have to watch it because it's so bad. All like right. it's horrible and like they didn't even try with the graphics like it's this really shitty velocir like velociraptor costume and it's awful but it's like get really ripped and then watch it because that's what i did and i was cry laughing because it's so bad it's supposed to be kind of like a horror movie it's not really all right i'm gonna have to check that out it's i think it's on amazon prime that's where i've seen it on i've always been tempted but i'm like i don't know it's so bad it's gonna change your life Uh, (laughs) i don't know necessarily for the better but i mean that's sometimes like like i said greasy strangler might do the same yeah yeah (laughs) you never know there's also that uh movie creep ever watched that i think it's on netflix still is that what i watched it on have i seen that it's it's a fucking trip it's a horror movie like in a suspense horror kind of way but it's just fucking weird the guy's a creep like literally he's just fucking creep and murdery and like one of my old friends showed it to me um and i just sat there the whole time i was like what the fuck and then I would just like look at what the fuck the whole time, just like what the fuck is happening? And then it just ends. And you're sitting there like, that's it. <laughs> it's oh, bad. Man. And then there's a second one. And oh. it's even worse. <laughs> well, that's always great when bad movies get a sequel. Oh yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, they've made like ten Fast and Furious, mm. so that's don't, my guilty don't. pleasure though. I mean, I keep watching them just I because I feel like I have to finish it now. I have to follow through. But I wish they had stopped like four movies ago. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, they should have stopped at three. Honestly, that's when it stopped being even remotely a a pinch of good. Um, But I I love them. I watch every single one of them. Also, I'm just like Vin Diesel being ridiculous and The Rock. I love The Rock in general. (laughs) Okay, okay, but they they kind of they really kind of lost me when Vin Diesel just straight on like palmed a car and stopped it from taking him out. Well, it's Vin Diesel, you know. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I love bad movies. So, in a way, that kind of got me into horror in a weird, (laughs) fucked up way. I don't know if there's an actual correlation there, but (laughs) there might be. Yeah. But Um, now I've just you know now my entire life kind of revolves around horror. (laughs) (laughs) 
just just ended up that way yeah. yeah i mean i love it i'm like i love watching really fucked up movies terrifier actually oh got God, me yeah. over my fear of clowns <laughs> weirdly enough like i had a i wouldn't say like a high a hardcore phobia of clowns but i was like oh clowns are kind of creepy yeah and then i watched terrifier and i was like yeah <laughs> Actually, my uh, show next week, I'm doing a Terrifier act. No way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. See, so I was working on it before I come over here. <laughs> what I'm thinking now is because next week I'm supposed to be recording with uh, Vix, uh, right? And so what I'm like, no, we might have to record earlier so we can go to the show after. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a pretty fucking awesome yeah, show. So yeah, so I think I think we'll definitely do that. Yeah. Right. Um, we had mentioned final girls mm-hmm. and I remember that there was the final girl contest a while back. Yeah. Uh, whatever happened with that? I sadly got cut like Aww. round. I don't know what I, I made it pretty far. I honestly didn't expect to make it like I, my friend, Frankie, Frankie vanity, who um, is a cosplay. Well, was she recently retired? Um, she's an amazing fucking costumer and a dear friend. I love Frankie to death. Shout out Frankie. <laughs> Um, but she sent it to me when they first posted it and she was like, girl, you totally got to do this. It's your shit. And I was like, eh, I don't know. And so I started following the page and then I was like, fuck it. Why not? Yeah. So I entered. It's free to enter. So I was like, whatever. But like, I made it kind of far, which I was surprised. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to make it that far. Cause I'm like, whatever, you know, like, I don't think I'm that popular. Um, uh, cause things like that are a popularity contest essentially, yeah. you know, but what it, what gets you is like you pay for votes like you get like a free vote a day but then you can do like 50 100 bucks for like multitudes of votes and it, <coughs> it got down to the wire where like some of me and my friends were like my friends were like i just put 25 bucks in for your votes and it's like down to the minute it's like counting down for the oh, next shit. round and i was actually so the round i got cut i don't even remember what round it was it was like round like three or four or something like that because they do drastic cuts i got into like the top 10 of my group but there's i don't know how many groups they don't tell you oh but they let literally anybody in like there's no like pre-qualifying round to like then be like open to the public yeah you're just it's just like you sign up and you're in and you don't have to have like a horror thing like some of the profiles i was like i was like Nothing about your page screams horror. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, and it, it definitely doesn't scream final girl. Yeah, if just, anything, it just, it's like, you're dying first. It, thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're the white girl that's like, what was that? Right. I'll be right back, you guys. I'm going to go by myself. <laughs> I'm going to run and trip and fall in the woods. Yeah. Um, bitch is always tripping. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, so there was, you know, it felt weird in a way. Um, I actually, they just reopened it this year and I applied again. Like, oh, yeah. like three or four days ago i just like i was like yeah fuck it let's see what happens all this right, year i don't right. know i think it would be pretty awesome to do a, a photo shoot with kane hotter so everybody go up there and vote for danny demise yeah. as final girl i don't know when the vote whenever opens, voting is open yeah. we will let you know it'll probably I'll, I'll open keep you all like updated. a month yeah I'll, I'll keep you up follow me on instagram i'll post about it yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah so i mean i applied again we'll see what happens this nice. year maybe okay. i'll make it i uh-huh. would love to do a photo shoot with kane hotter in <laughs> that house that would be so amazing because it's in the silence of the lambs house oh it's like fuck. in the actual house uh, and i'm like oh that'd okay be so yeah cool. i love that, that would movie. be amazing yeah that'd be super cool and you get like a magazine uh cover and like spread and you also get like thirteen thousand dollars which would be really I mean, rad because <laughs> I got a lot of burlesque stuff I want to buy. Way to bury the lead there. I know. I want to... I got a lot of burlesque stuff I want to buy. 
of stuff I would like to invest in. Yeah. And it would be really awesome to reinvest in the troupe and really up our show production. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. all righty. Um, well, um, are we down to take a quick break? Head downstairs. Sure. Sounds good. Check in, see how they're doing. Yeah. Maybe food's ready. I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> we shall return. All right. <clears throat> we have returned. Uh, so let's see. Where did we leave off? Ah, right. Polly had officially been taken yes. from her home uh, by Richard Allen Davis. Um, so the search for Polly gained national attention during the early stages of the investigation. As many as 75 agents from the FBI and 50 Petaluma police officers canvassed Polly's neighborhood for evidence regarding her disappearance. For nearly two months, the investigation received thousands of leads and tips. Davis, however, was not linked with Polly's disappearance until November 27, 1993, when property owner Jaffe discovered in a clearing a few, a few feet from where the defendant's car had been, stuck on October 1st, a pair of child-sized red-knitted tights, which, if you remember, was what was missing from the house. And they were knotted at the knees, an adult-sized dark sweatshirt turned inside out, and a knotted piece of white silky cloth shaped like a hood. The hood was triang triangular-shaped with one knot at its broader end, two knots forming two loops at its apex end, and a concave area in the middle that appeared to have makeup smears on it. The soil in the clearing was exposed as if someone had purposefully cleared the area of ground cover. That night, Jaffe called the sheriff's office, left a message, and called again the next morning. Which I feel like you shouldn't have to call that many times. Right. <laughs> about something like that. When it's like, y'all been looking for how long? Almost two months. And mm -hmm. it's like, um, by the way, there's this here in this clearing... Hey, there's still this stuff in this clearing. Right by where you guys saw this guy. Yeah, right where you talked to him and helped him leave the scene. Right. Literally assisted. Oh, yeah. That's actually bad when you think about it that way. Yeah. It's like they literally just like assisted him in getting out of the crime scene. Yeah, pretty much. It's just uh, so much of it was yeah, handled it, inappropriately. Yeah, the whole it's it kind of reminds me of like the OJ trial because <laughs> like the cops fucking bumbled that so bad mm -hmm. and like mishandled so much of the evidence and everything that OJ got away with it. And uh yeah. It's kind of nuts when you just think about it because there's so many times and so much that was left behind that one could have avoided if he had remained jailed and so much that happened the night of that either could have prevented or, or stopped it potentially in the middle. Right. Because there is even, I believe there was even speculation that at the time when they first encountered him mm -hmm. out there, Polly was still alive. Right. And then after the encount the initial encounter, that's when he disappeared to kill her. Mm -hmm. 
and then came back, and then that's when he had the interaction with the police. Right. So it's like... It could have been stopped, potentially, if uh, if that is actually how it happened. Yeah, but. yeah, it's just, it's so bad. The whole scene's bad. So, on November 28th, 1993, Deputy Sheriff Mike McManus arrived at Jaffe's property to inspect the scene. He and Jaffe found an unrolled condom one to two feet away from the clothes, a torn Rough Rider condom, wrapper, two pieces of strapping tape, a beer bottle, an empty plastic six-pack holder, and a book of matches. So if we remember, the brand of condom that Mm -hmm. was purchased by Davis was a Rough Rider condom. Yep. So it's kind of hard to prove that, you know, it's not you, buddy. So Jaffe told Deputy McManus of the October 1st incident involving Davis on her hillside. Because it was starting to rain, Deputy McManus was concerned about damage to trace evidence, and he did not follow normal evidence collection protocol. Instead of leaving the scene intact, he picked up the items and placed them in a box. He left the unrolled condom because he did not have materials in his patrol vehicle to collect such evidence and he believed it was a sealed container that would not be damaged by the rain. If it's an unrolled condom, how is that a sealed container? That literally makes zero sense. Right, like, <laughs> I... It's an unwrapped condom on the ground. How is that protected? Right, there, there's literally nothing protecting that. No. There's nothing protecting anything anymore. No. I mean, everybody it, knows it, what it, an unwrapped condom looks like. like yeah, it's... It's just there, existing... Uh, so basically, he, he left that, and later that day, an FBI team took photographs and recovered the condom. So basically, all the evidence is destroyed at this point by the rain, mm-hmm. because... and then, like, But also, it's been like two months of weather. True. Which, like, October through November in the Bay Area, mm. it's raining like crazy. Yeah, it's that cold. is true. There's a lot of moisture. Most of that area freezes overnight in those oh, seasons. Yeah. Yeah, especially, like, out in, like, the sticks. In the sticks, yeah. yeah. You get, like, that frost layer, and then it, like, melts off in the morning. Yeah, so there was no way that they were going to be able to collect anything, really. No. But he still should have grabbed it, because, like, the fact that he was just like, oh, no, that's fine. He's grabbing everything else. Right, and it's like, so you can put everything... But the one thing that could probably tie it. You can put everything into a box, but the condom. Okay, got it. (laughs) You just didn't want to touch it. I feel yeah. like it's it's like the Dahmer thing where it's like it's uncomfortable. He didn't want right. to deal with it. He just didn't want to touch a condom. <sighs> uh, anyway, so Deputy McManus researched the October 1st, 1993 incident on Dana Jaffe's hillside and determined Davis's identity and his prior criminal record of assault and kidnapping. He gave hmm. this information to the Petaluma Police Department. Who somehow didn't have it still by this point. Like, it's been two months. Right. And, like, they didn't... Nothing came back on him? This well, is, I mean, at that point, I don't even know if they knew to look into him specifically. Yeah. You know, but... Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, it's just funny that this guy looks into it and he's just like... Oh, hey. He kidnapped some people. And... 
other stuff. And they're like, oh, <laughs> did not know that. Huh. And then this actually does go into like why information was not so widely shared back then. Right. Like, I feel like that would have solved so many things if like police inter like police departments interacted with each other mm -hmm. they shared information they broadcast on the same channels right you know well, and like, i mean that was kind of a result of this case you know yeah was like a lot of those things getting put into place because this case was such an eye-opening experience i think for yeah, all agencies that were like oh, maybe we should talk more well and especially if it's like the city and like like CHP, like CHP should have honestly access to everybody's frequencies. Right. Because they're throughout the entire state. Mm -hmm. They need to know everything. But just especially if you're like in a local area and like police in Petaluma and Santa Rosa should be communicating. Yeah. Like you're like right. Like you're what, right next to each other. 25 miles apart or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It's literally like. Yeah. A five to ten minute drive sometimes, you know, depending on traffic. Well, nowadays, probably like 40. Well, yeah. But like, <laughs> Back know. then, you could definitely get to Santa Rosa and Petaluma in like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. But yeah, so the Petaluma Police Department's lead investigator, Sergeant Michael Meese, examined the evidence collected by Deputy McManus with his department's lead evidence technician, Officer Larry Pelton. And they agreed that the hood-shaped cloth matched cloth pieces found in Polly's bedroom. The next day, an FBI laboratory confirmed the match. The Petaluma Police Department learned that, the, that Davis was a parolee who had an outstanding parole violation warrant against him based on an October 19, 1993 drunk driving arrest in Mendocino County. So this was even after... Mm -hmm. Yeah, he got a DUI, and then his PO, uh, but he was, well, yeah, because Mendocino, but his parole check-in was in Ukiah, and he was just, like, going back and forth. Oh, my God. I mean, I remember, like, when I was on probation, I couldn't even leave the fucking city without telling my probation officer, and this dude's right. just, like, bouncing around the entire state like it's nothing. Right. Like Mendocino and Ukiah are definitely not Sonoma County. <laughs> no, not even close. No, like that's a drive. <laughs> yeah, just Mendo alone is a drive. But then to get to Ukiah, because like I have like a three and a half hours. Yeah, I have Luma. a sister that lives in Ukiah, and it's mm -hmm. ridiculously far from here. Yeah, it takes forever to get there. Yeah, so yeah, um. The Petaluma, yeah, Petaluma Police Department learned that. Oh, I already said that. Uh, do, do, do. Davis's parole officer told them that Davis was at his sister's home in Ukiah. Mm -hmm. On November 30th, 1993, Petaluma police officers and FBI agents arrived at Davis's sister's residence in Ukiah and arrested him without incident on the parole violation warrant. They also seized Davis's car and personal belongings. Davis had since shaved off his beard. Because he didn't want to be identifiable. Right. Later that day, the officers transported Davis to the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department where Petaluma Police Officer Pelton and FBI Agent Larry Taylor confront confronted him about Polly Class's kidnapping. 
Davis denied any involvement. Two days later, on December 2nd, 1993, criminalists matched Davis's palm print with a print found in Polly's bedroom. Can't deny it now, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> and that actually, I don't know why, but like that just made me think of, um, have you seen this documentary on Netflix called The Submarine Murder? No. So I saw it and initially my mind went to the submarine with the billionaires. Right. That, you know. Yeah. Recent. Um, yeah. So I saw that and I was like, oh, submarine. And then I was like, oh, no, it's a whole different thing. There's this like Danish guy or like Swedish guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was like Denmark or Sweden, you know, one of the two. And he was, like, this celebrity who, like, built rockets and fucking submarines and shit. And, like, he was, like, trying to be, like, one of the first amateur astronauts to go into space. And he he convinced all these people to, like, volunteer for him and, like, work for him for free and shit. (laughs) And so, like, he was doing all this and they were supposed to launch these rockets. And then one day he takes this journalist out on his submarine. And then the next day the submarine goes missing. And then the submarine is found with just him on it. What the fuck? And it sank. And he's like, so they rescue him. And he's like, oh, no, like, it was just me. I dropped her off at this one place, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, like, so, but she hasn't contacted anybody. She hasn't shown mm-hmm. up, anything. Like, she's just gone. Like, am I? Yeah. And then, so, like, he gets arrested under suspicion of, like, you know, like, her disappearance. Apparently, they can, like, arrest you like, I don't know how it works over there, but, like, they just arrested him. They're, like, on murder charges oh. without a body, without anything. Without any form of actual yeah. evidence. Yeah, just they, just, they just arrested him on murder charges based on suspicion. I don't know. I can't speak to any other country's laws. But. Yeah, but <laughs> so what ended up happening is, like, eventually, like, parts of her body started to turn up. Oh, and God. so, like, every time more evidence would show up, his story would change naturally yeah and so like that's what that just made me think of where it's like oh like i'm gonna deny anything until you have something that catches me and then it's like oh well i did this but i didn't do this yeah he's like uh i guess i can't talk my way out of this part anymore yeah yeah it's it's bad so on december 4th 1993 after petaluma police sergeant meese had spoken to davis in jail and encouraged him to contact him if there was any hope that polly was still alive Davis asked to speak to Meese and told him over the telephone, quote, I fucked up big time. He admitted that Polly was dead and agreed to help find her body. That afternoon, Sergeant Meese met with, the def- with Davis at the Mendocino County Jail, where he, Sonoma County District Attorney Investigator Mike Griffith, and FBI agent Larry Taylor questioned Davis for nearly two hours. Davis claimed he went to Petaluma on the night of October 1st, 1993, to contact his mother. Unable to find her, he went to a park where he drank beer and smoked a marijuana cigarette that may have contained phenocyclidine, which is apparently PCP. Did not know the actual name for that. Oh, yeah, you're high on PCP. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually accidentally done that one time oh and it's God. it's a scary experience and people like, are like superman well like, the fact I, that he didn't go in just like yeah that's so swinging oh god yeah that could have been so bad yeah but like 
I didn't do any like crazy like strongman shit or anything, but like right. it was just like so disorienting. Like right. the whole experience, like I literally had like my roommate had to call me and be like, "Where are you?" Because like I had just gone to the store, which <laughs> was like, like a block. It was like a block away, and I like I got lost on the way back, oh, and gosh. then like they had to come find me, and I was just like, "Yeah, I don't know where I am." There's a bunch of lights and everything. There's a fire truck across the street with its lights on, so yeah. it was like making it even worse. I was just like, there's Super flashing lights, and I'm just sitting here, and I don't know. I was in a college parking lot apparently. Oh, my God. Yeah, so don't do drugs, kids. Yeah. You know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so Davis said he did not have a clear recollection of what he did next. I mean, I don't blame you. PCP is yeah, a hell of a PCP, drug. Right. He recalled entering a home through a window and hearing some voices in a room. But he said that he had never seen Polly Class before that point. Which I find hard to believe because remember, he's like, why are there so many people here? And like they had walked past the park when they went to get popsicles. Yeah. So it's like I I feel like that was what triggered him. And he like followed them. Right. Well, and assuming the same liquor marts are the ones that were there in 93 are still the ones currently. Like I know which one she went to is likely the 7-Eleven. That's right there on the corner in that neighborhood that, like, all the kids go to. Yeah. You know, and, like, walked right by both of those parks. Yeah. So, it's, like, it's very likely that he had seen her before, and that's why he targeted her. hmm He did remember tying the three girls up with items in the bedroom. He then recalled driving and suddenly realizing that he had Polly in the front seat of his car. When she complained that the bindings were too tight and her hands were going numb. Can you imagine just, like, coming to out of your drug-induced, like, stupor and you're just like, oh, fuck. Right. I got a kid in here. I mean, like, you know, the PCP is a good cover. (laughs) I mean, He had a few months to think about that. True. He did come up with it after a long period of time. Right. And I don't feel that... The cops that interacted with him that night would have let him go if he was on PCP because, like, to exhibit signs of right, like you're PCP, clearly fucked up when you're on PCP. You're not. It's not like oh, I'm high. I couldn't make together. my way. I couldn't make my way home a block away. Right. You're so like, <laughs> it's not like when you like smoke too many joints and you're like, okay, just keep it together. I'm talking to the cops. Like, no, you don't even know what you're doing. It's like not when that, you're it's not when you you're 18 years old somebody. and you face plant in a park and the cops come up to you and you're like, oh, yeah, that was me. Right. You know, like luck of the Irish over here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like you blacked out enough that you didn't even realize you kidnapped a child, but you were good enough to play off the police. Like, probably not. Yeah. that like, Yeah. That, your story's not adding <laughs> up, dude. The math ain't mathin'. No, it's not mathin' at all. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Uh, so Polly kept saying that she wanted to go home. Davis drove around for a while, confused about what to do, and got lost driving up Pythian Road, mm. where his car eventually got stuck on Jaffe's property. He then untied Polly and placed her on the embankment where she remained while he tried to fe- free his car, at which point the deputies arrived. So wait, she was just sitting on the embankment? Like, right, like, she was just sitting there the whole time, and the cops were like, 
huh, there's a kid tied up right there. Like, they would have seen her if she was just chilling right there. Okay. Maybe he did have her, like, slightly up the embankment or something because it says, according to Davis, he waited for about 30 minutes after the deputies escorted him off Pythian Road before returning to the hillside and retrieving Polly. So maybe he had, like, because he had all the brush and everything on him. Right, but just by that story right there, just that section of it, he's, like, admitting that he knows what he did was wrong, and he's And that she was still alive. Right, and that she's still alive. So, like, you then, instead of just... Yeah, so the cops definitely could have prevented this. He could have just left her ass there in reality. I mean... True. You're in the middle of dark wood, in the middle of nowhere. Like, you could have just been like, bye, kid. But no, right. you still chose to murder her. Yeah, because you're, if you were like, oh, I accidentally kidnapped this kid. Oh, shit, the cops just showed up. You know what? I'm just going to wash my hands of the situation and disappear into the darkness. Right. Like, he could have, like, just left her there, drove off. It's You have facial hair and long hair. It's easy to change your appearance, right? Yeah. Shave. Like, cut your hair. Right. And by wash, the time, your, wash your yellow headband. <laughs> right. Dingy yellow <laughs> headband. By the time anybody could have realized what the fuck even happened and tried to identify, I mean, he's, there's nothing besides his, like, appearance that multiple people were able to pinpoint. There's nothing really, like, standout-ish, you know? I mean, he could blend into a crowd if he wanted to. Yeah, definitely. But he's sporadic. We know he's not good at planning things here. (laughs) Right. He doesn't plan anything. (laughs) No. He just does whatever the voices tell him to do. He's living life on the edge. (laughs) In the danger zone. Oh, fuck. (laughs) It's a danger zone. Uh, So he then drove to a gas station so Polly could use the bathroom. After leaving the gas station, Davis realized that he had to kill Polly to avoid returning to prison. No, I think the of the avoiding returning to prison would have been, like you said, just leave her. Leave her there. Leave her there. She's in the bathroom. Dead. well, She's or, at a gas e- station. or even yeah, at the bathroom or anything like you could just leave her, right? And then it's not your problem anymore. But no. But also, wouldn't there be like security camera footage of him taking her to this gas station bathroom? In 1993, maybe not. Well, they probably get written over like every 48 hours. If it's yeah. Like stereotypical yeah. gas station set up in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, oh, yeah, just every 24 to 48 hours or whatever. It's a new a right. new feed, a new loop. Two and a half months later, you have no luck. Yeah. But. So he strangled her with a piece of knotted cloth. He later cinched a piece of cord tight around Polly's neck, quote, just to make sure. Oh, my God. Then dragged her to some bushed and dragged her to some bushes, and covered her body with a piece of plywood and chunks of wood that he found in the area. Davis said he did not think that he had sex with Polly or that he tried to have sex with her. So he didn't think he did it. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I did that. I don't recall. That's, it's like a really shitty cover-up. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't... Considering he had tried to essentially molest every other one of his victims... Like, yeah, it wouldn't be far fetched that he also attempted with her. Yeah, especially considering you know you're like, oh, I don't remember this, but I do remember driving there, getting lost, picking her back up, going to the gas station, 
doing all this other stuff while under the influence of PCP, I remember all of these other things mm-hmm. that I did, but I don't remember kidnapping her and I don't remember killing her or sexually assaulting her. It's a selective memory at best. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> so that same evening, Davis, accompanied by Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese, FBI Agent Taylor, Sonoma County District Attorney Investigator Griffith, and other law enforcement officers, retraced his route after Polly's kidnapping. When they arrived at Dutcher Creek Road, located 100 feet from Highway 101, just south of Cloverdale, Davis pointed the officers in the direction of Polly's body. Polly's badly decomposed body lay under the piece of plywood and other pieces of wood in the area, covered with thorny blackberry briars, thick underbrush, and debris. Her skeletonized skull lay a a short distance from the rest of her body, probably as a result of animal activity. Much of her body has skeletonized, including her entire abdominal cavity, with soft tissues and organs all absent. But some portions of the body, including her limbs, had dried in a mummified state. Polly's remains were partially partially covered by the nightgown Jillian P. had brought to Polly's slumber party. According to an FBI agent who observed her body, the nightgown was pulled up and inverted under her arms, which were folded across her lap. I mean, these are all pretty clear indicators Mm -hmm. of sexual abuse. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's kind of impossible for him to try to claim that it didn't happen. Right. Like, it's a a 12-year-old, dude. Like, how do you... People are fucked up. And then, like, what really bugs me is that I think this one psychologist tried to, like, define it as paraphilia, where it's like, oh, sexual arousal by, like, unusual things or like this that and the other including minors and i'm like no that's pedophilia pedophilia yeah Yeah, it's not it's not synonymous it's not no it's 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 wrong like there's no anyway yeah it's just i psychological disorders can be stacked but i don't know about like in place of yeah yeah yeah. (sighs) Uh, yeah it's just it's rough um, so her pink blouse was untied and her white miniskirt had been pulled up to her chest, but she was still wearing her bra and panties. Her legs were spread outwards, bent at the knees and hips, which suggested that the body had not been haphazardly thrown into the brush or that rigor mortis had previously set the legs in that position. Again, clear indication of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And... On a child. <sighs> Strands of Polly's hair. Hmm. Gross. Yeah. Just gross. Yeah, it, it's like, it just, it gets to the point where it's just like, okay, it's just bad. It's yeah. just gross no matter what. It's just, it's, yeah. This is, like we said, this is a very tragic story. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's it's one that could have been prevented. And luckily it did, like you say, help influence, you know, communication between agencies a little better and especially Mm -hmm. like localized agencies 
the fact that you're this close to another county and you're not listening to their like their right. radio because like because there's on different broadcast channels but it's like why can't i yeah exactly i feel like if anything you should have somebody whose like job is to just kind of like monitor the other counties and cities around you right. and just be like oh shit hey somebody might be popping into our town because they just did this over here right like oh hey there's a report of this over here so keep an eye out for anything right keep an eye out for some weirdo in the yeah. bushes with a bunch of shit in his hair and an inside out sweater right you know driving a fucking pinto yeah <laughs> i mean first indicator the pinto <laughs> the fucking pinto <laughs> Well, and like, I mean, now they share a lot more frequencies and stuff, you know, because of this case. Yeah. And I mean, this case also helped, like, nationally bring in the three strike law or three strike type laws. Right. Like, because the board. if those laws had been in place with Davis, he would never have been out. Yeah. Polyclass never would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, bad that it happened. Good that there was at least... A silver lining, I guess. Uh, a benefit to come out of it. To some degree. Yeah. yeah, a small degree. So, strands of Polly's hair, located separately from her body and skull, had a braided rope and a knotted cloth tangled within them. The examining, the examining pathologist, Dr. A.J. Chapman... I like how it's Dr. Letter A... And then J A Y A J Chapman <laughs> testified that the cause of Polly's death was unascertainable because of the condition of her body, right. but that the rope and knotted cloth could have fit around Polly's neck and might have been used to strangle her. During the autopsy, when members of the FBI's evidence response team examined the remnants of Polly's panties with an alternative light source, a stain fluoresced, indicating the possible presence of semen. Further forensic testing, however, did not detect any semen at the location, which either meant that it was never present or that it was present but had degraded so as to be unidentifiable. I mean, this was two months ago. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, her body didn't last long in the elements. So, I mean, no. the, the fact that evidence. And going from, like, hot to cold to hot. Well, yeah. Not really, like, hot because it's the fall. But, like, a layer of frost every morning, essentially. Yeah, exactly. It's like a microfreeze, mm -hmm. you know, like, every night. Um, so, after returning from the Dutcher Creek site on the night of December 4th, Davis again described how he had strangled Polly with a piece of cloth. He added that when he eased up on the cloth, he thought he heard her groan, so he tightened up the cloth again and tied a knot. He then tied a cord around her neck and waited for Polly's movements to stop, which he described as taking, quote, forever. Ugh. Like, the, the fact that he's, like, so callously just like, yeah, it just took fucking forever. Right, like, like oh, bro, yeah, yeah. you... Like what the fuck is wrong with you? Oh, I mean a lot, but like <laughs> a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a yeah, lot. It's deep, but like, and to just that speaks to his mental state too, to such a degree. Like, not not to defend him by any means, but you just sat there and watched. Yeah, that's twisted. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. 
and to just be like, oh. And then, like, what's really fucked up is, like, so he had strangled her, and she was still alive. So, like, he could have still stopped at this point. Right. I mean, at that point, though, you're, like, so far in. I mean, like, yes, but she, like, you could have stopped and been, like, oh, shit. Like, she's, I didn't mean to, but she's still alive. Like, let me just fucking stop and, like, right. dip out. Something. Anything. Yeah. But no. That's when he's, like, oh, let me just. You tied a knot. <sighs> yeah. That's so intense. <sighs> yeah. So, on December 6, 1993, Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese and FBI Agent Taylor questioned Davis again and confronted him with evidence that he had sexually assaulted Polly before killing her. Sergeant Meese told, De- told Davis that they had found semen during an examination of Polly's remains. When Davis asked where the semen was found, Sergeant Meese responded, quote, On the body. To which Davis replied, not in her, though. Davis denied sexually assaulting Polly. When asked how semen could have wound up on Polly's body, Davis replied, quote, Look, I told you at least it wasn't in her. He added, What I'm trying to tell you is that, in my mind... At least I didn't try to stick my dick in the little fucking girl. What a fucking creep. It makes my <sighs> spine crawl. Yeah, like, I just like, literally ugh. just, like, got such a gross feeling. Right. Like, my entire body just, like... Yeah, I'm like, ugh. Like, ugh. Like, that's your justification level? Yeah, that, exactly. Like, he's literally just justifying it at this point. He's like, look, yeah, I, I might have done this, but I didn't do this. Right, I only took it this far. Well, and basically, I think what he's even saying is, you can only prove I took it this far. Right. Because it's kind of like I said with that submarine guy, where it's like, if he had been presented with more evidence, his story would have changed. Yeah. And he's like, but I only did this, so maybe they'll let me off again. (sighs) So, when pressed again about the semen, Davis responded, quote, That's something I'm going to live with and run through my mind over and over and over again. Which brings me back to his, I like to replay the tying up the women while I masturbate. So that's not a good thing in my mind. This is a bad thing in my mind. He's basically admitting that he's going to relive this. Right. He also claimed it was a, quote, load off his mind. And he was glad when FBI agent Taylor told him that semen was found on Polly, but not necessarily in her because he did not want that hanging over him. So then he's kind of referring back to like, oh, my PC, my quote unquote PCP blackout. Yeah, basically he's like, oh, if I go to prison and I sexually assaulted a kid and murdered her, everybody's going to go after me. Mm -hmm. But if I just murdered her. It's not that big a deal. Right. I won't get as bad of a rap in prison. Yeah. And it says Davis expressed concern that he would be mistreated in prison if other inmates considered him a child killer and molester. At the end of the interview, Davis said, quote, I have to see what comes out of forensics. Hope nothing comes up. Hope nothing's in her. Still... 
kind of leaving it open-ended that it could be. Right. He's basically saying, like, I hope I didn't leave anything behind. Right. Like, he did it. He, We all know he did it. he did it. But he's basically saying, like, you can't prove I did it, and I hope you can't. Jesus. Just because he didn't want to get his ass kicked in prison. Which I feel like That's I really hope, concern. I really hope he still got his ass kicked in prison. Right. So, during the trial, the defense conceded that Davis had killed Polly, but asserted that the evidence did not show that he sexually assaulted her. So, basically, again, they're just trying to push this point of, he killed her, but he didn't do anything else. There wasn't, like, enough evidence to prove it. Yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, not unfortunately, but... Yeah. So, the defense called as witnesses Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese and Sonoma County District Attorney Investigator Michael Griffith, Griffith to impeach the testimony of Jeanette Turner, the owner of the sex shop. That one went down. What the hell was that? Camera fell. Oh. Okay, cool. <laughs> Things are just... Things are happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> Where did it go? Oh. It fell down like right behind oh. you. Like, oh, okay. I think it went yeah. that way. Yeah. Crash and burn. Oh shit. Okay. And now there's a water bottle just dumping all over. Oh no. A it's power all over strip. Your keyboard. Ah. Uh, okay. Cool. 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 Let me just. God damn it. You grab a towel. I just need to double check where we're at here. Okay. <laughs> There's like water all over your keyboard. Uh, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Well, this took a sharp left turn. <laughs> <laughs> all together, all of it. <laughs> yeah, it literally was just like moment to moment, just getting worse. All right. So we only have a few more slides. So we're going to try and. Power through power this. Through this. Yeah. Nothing else falls over. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. So, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, they were trying to overturn the testimony of Jeanette Turner, who had testified under a grant of immunity for an unrelated fraud case regarding her inconsistent statements about whether Davis had purchased a particular condom from her adult store just before the crimes. The defense also pre presented testimony from Davis's parole officer, Thomas Burns, about his contacts with Davis in August and September of 1993 in an attempt to show that Davis could not have been in Petaluma before the crimes as frequently as the prosecution's eyewitnesses had claimed. Basically, they're reaching for straws yeah, at this point. They're like grasping. any, yeah, they're just like any little thing we can be like, well, no, no, he was seeing his parole officer that day. He wasn't in Petaluma. But it's like, just throw the fucking book at the guy. I mean, look at his rap sheet. Come that's, on. That's why I, I honestly kind of have an issue with criminal defense attorneys. It's like, bro, you realize you're defending these terrible fucking people. And your job is to try to help them get away with it. It is wild when you really think about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, granted, yes, there are people who 
get into criminal cases that are innocent mm-hmm. and need a good criminal defense attorney. For sure. Granted. But 99% of the time, you're defending some scum of the earth fucking people that and are you doing know that some. Scum of the yeah, earth. that you know for a fact are guilty, but you turn a blind eye to it because you want a paycheck. Ugh. Have fun sleeping at night. Couldn't do that job. Yeah, no. No, no, no. I like to argue, but no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So despite the defense's best efforts, the jury found Richard Allen Davis guilty of murdering Polly Class. After the jury returned its verdict at the guilt phase of trial, Davis turned towards the television cameras in the courtroom and made an obscene gesture with both hands by extending his middle fingers. He then winked his eyes and blew a kiss. Like, talk about a garbage response to, like, you literally were just, like, basically begging and pleading for your life, and now you're just like, ha Fuck it, yeah. Like, wubba lubba dub dub. Yeah, and, like, yeah. taunting the family through the trial. Oh, like, yeah, especially. Just, you suck, dude. Yeah, I didn't even uh, bring up the the comment that he had made about how, he didn't sexually assault Polly because right before he killed her, she made a comment about, please don't do me like my daddy. Yeah. And at this point, Polly's father like lunges at him in the courtroom and like, mm. get, like goes off. And he's just like, he's like, I understand I shouldn't have lost my cool. But like for this piece of shit to like sit there and try to accuse me of right, like doing you killed what, my kid. Yeah, of what he... Yeah, of, And you're trying to point the finger at me. Yeah, Fuck so it's you. Just, I've, yeah. I'd lunge at him, too. I, I would have whooped his ass. And, I mean, you know, there's a whole level of speculation around that comment specifically. <sighs> and, like, was her dad assaulting her? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like, I'd probably lunge at a motherfucker. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So... Speaking of, Polly's father, Mark Class, and her grandfather, Eugene Reed asked the court to sentence Davis to death. The court then allowed Davis to read a statement in which he complained at length about the failure of the police to provide him a lawyer after he invoked his right to counsel and said he only confessed after not seeing a lawyer for four days because he assumed no attorney wanted to represent him because of the infamy of the case and because Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese had exploited Davis's symptoms of nicotine withdrawal. Basically, he's like, they kept me in holding and didn't <laughs> let me smoke any cigarettes, so I confessed. Right. I mean, like, I quit smoking and nicotine withdrawal sucks, but I don't think I confessed to fucking murder. (laughs) Yeah, no. Give me a cigarette or I'm going to confess to murder. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, nah, dude. Sorry. Like, I don't think I've ever wanted a cigarette that bad. Right. Like, there have definitely been times where I'm like, give me a fucking cigarette. But, like, never that bad. Like, nice try, but no. Yeah. So, Davis asserted that because of the intentional disregard of his Miranda rights, his attorneys were forced to admit guilt on some of the charges against him. At the close of his statement, Davis set up... I actually do bring it up. 
Davis set off a commotion in the courtroom when he claimed he knew he did not commit a lewd act upon Polly, quote, because of a statement the young girl made to me when walking her up the embankment. Just don't do me like my dad. After pronouncing this, Davis said, Oh, after pronouncing Davis's sentence of death, the trial court concluded the proceedings by stating, quote, Mr. Davis, this is always a traumatic and emotional decision for a judge. You've made it very easy today by your conduct. Jeez. Basically, he was like, you know, I normally would feel really bad about sentencing someone to death. Right. But... He's like, fuck this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh... Don't think it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That would have been hilarious if the judge was just like. <laughs> <laughs> and then like winked at him yeah, and blew him a kiss. Not professional in any manner. But <laughs> no, but like, uh, I feel like at the, the moment calls for it. The moment calls for it. Shoe fits. Lace up right. and wear it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wouldn't feel too good talking about this story without talking about who Polly Class was before Richard Allen Davis snuffed out her bright light. Polly Class was born January 3rd, 1981. She was described as funny, intelligent, and beautiful. Quote, an absolutely extraordinary child who was warm-hearted with a sunny disposition and an infectious laugh. She played the piano and the clarinet and had a particular love for acting on stage. She was afraid of being alone in the dark, often sleeping with her lights on, and fearful that, quote, a bad man would come and take her in the night. That's so sad. Oh, I just got goosebumps. I know. Like, oh, it's, uh, it's like creepy in a way. Right. Like, it's like almost like she had like a psychic, like right. premonition. Like she like knew something fucked up was going to happen. I mean, I think like uh, most 12 year olds are like afraid of the dark. Right. And like, don't want to be alone in the dark. And they're like, some yeah. bad man's going to take me away because like the boogeyman, you yeah, know. But like, but like in this instance, it just kind of rings a little uh, too. Yeah. A little too eerie. That's super fucking eerie. And although Polly's mother, Eve Nickel, did not testify at the penalty phase, Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese described her on the night of Polly's abduction as being, quote, in a state of shock and anguish, which was reflected in a photograph taken of Nickel with her six-year-old daughter, Annie, that night. Nickel's father, Polly's maternal grandfather, Eugene Reed, drove up to see his daughter soon after Polly's abduction and found her in deep shock, describing her as being too numb to even cry. Polly's father, Mark Class, who was divorced from Polly's mother, maintained a very close relationship with Polly, seeing Polly every weekend and taking and talking to her almost daily. In the weeks before Polly's remains were discovered, he helped establish a volunteer center to direct the search for her. During this period, he abandoned his successful car rental business, lost 30 pounds, developed a severe sleep disorder, and began seeing a therapist. Which, everybody should see a therapist. Go to therapy. Yeah. Everybody needs therapy. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, dude, I think I'd throw my fucking life away if my kid was I, missing. Like, yeah. I don't, I, I could not, I mean, I don't even have kids yet. <laughs> One day eventually, but, like, 
I can't even fathom that. I mean, I have kids that are very important in my life and that I help co-parent. And if something ever were to happen, I'd raise hell. I'd be yeah. beating down doors. Yeah, exactly. I would. I'd be a mess. Yeah. After learning that Polly was dead, he went berserk and became so enraged that members of his family had to restrain him. It was an anger that he said he carries on to this day. He became a child advocate promoting an agenda to spare other children from her fate. He continued to have sleep disorders, often experiencing dreams and nightmares about Polly and continued to see a therapist. Polly also enjoyed a close relationship with her maternal grandfather, Eugene Reed, often visiting him and his wife at their home on the Monterey Peninsula, where she would play music with him and take walks on the beach. Reed described the 64 days Polly was missing as just about the worst time he had ever had in his life. Even worse was the discovery that Polly was dead. In her memory, he and his wife put up a bench in Pacific Grove, facing the ocean, with an, with an inscription for Polly. <sighs> well, that was definitely a sad story to cover. Yeah. But also a really want, important one to talk about at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because like we had mentioned, this case prompted the sharing of information and broadcasting of alerts on channels that all law enforcement agencies have access to, mm -hmm. which hopefully prevents something like this from happening again. Yeah, brought in so many different laws into place too. Yeah, and one well, like you mentioned, the three strike law. Yeah, because, the three strike law, and I mean that obviously is a huge impact now. Yeah, it's just like a known thing, and it changed the community nonetheless. I mean, as much of an impact as it had on like law enforcement and the legal system overall, it that phone really wants to play Beethoven. <laughs> okay. You're done. You're done, kid. You're done fucked up. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay, yeah, everything's collapsing. It's col The system is collapsing around us. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> but, you know, it, cha it changed. It changed Petaluma as a whole. You know, I mean, it's a very small community. Um, it's definitely not as small. I mean, back then, I think in the 90s, the early 90s, the population of Petaluma was like, 45,000 people, something like that. I think it didn't, it might have been like 48 or 50 when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, and I mean, we say small town, and like, yeah, those aren't necessarily like super small town numbers. There's obviously way Yeah, but you have towns. to think about like how dispersed it is, too. Yeah, because Petaluma it's like pretty wide and yeah, it's, it's mostly not, farms. It's not like a big city center where it's like, no. oh, it's this many people, but it's all crammed into a tiny little fucking square acreage of space. You know? Yeah, like, I mean, it could take you like two hours to walk clear across town. I used to do it when I was a teenager. Yeah, I walked all over yeah. that town. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, teenager, no car. Um, but you know it changed and like the whole ideology of like lock your doors you know like i said before like put a dowel in the window yeah. you know put a stick like that was so huge um when i was a kid in petaluma some there was this guy that like kept breaking into people's like yards and houses and stuff and he broke into a, one of my neighbor's houses, like literally across the street. And I mean, it was insane. Like the helicopters were out, police department oh, was out. And this guy was like, 
they were such her search and search. It was actually like a friend of ours that uh, had called it in. It was her yard. And they search and they search and they couldn't find this guy. And then, you know, police leave and everything. And then she, you know, is going to make sure her back slider door was locked. And as she's double checking her lock, she looks up and he crawls out of her hot tub. Oh, no. Like he was hiding in the fucking hot tub, like under the cover. And like, I mean, yeah, you wouldn't really be like, oh, yeah, there's a covered hot tub. Let me check. Those things are heavy. That's mm-hmm. hot in there, bro. Yeah. You know, but this dude was hiding in there. And like, I remember a bunch of people were like, oh, my God, it's Polly Clark. Like, not that this guy had murdered anybody or kidnapped anybody, yeah. but people were like, ah, you know, and it was just crazy. I remember that very distinctly. It was an insane day. I think I was like nine or something <laughs> like that. But it was just in. They talked about polyclass in school, like, you know, the polyclass foundation was ingrained, like there was a polyclass event every year and like you, we were given like t-shirts and stuff and yeah. like the body system was huge and, you know, something like that happens in Petaluma and it rocks the community because it's, it's a smaller community at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. as much as it's turned into a city and it's become vastly industrialized, it's still, you know, I mean, I grew up in a small cow town where... When we were younger, the saying of Petaluma was, you smell it before you see it. Because, <laughs> you know, it wasn't so industrialized. It was yeah. mostly farms. You'd be driving yeah. in a town at night and you could smell the cow shit before you would see the lights of the town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, like, it's, it's definitely the kind of thing that, like, the aftershocks and the ripples, like, are felt well after the event itself. Definitely. You know, and it's like, it just was such, like such a detrimental case to like that area mm-hmm. and like to her family and to like to everything it was just like so random too yeah like, they the... moved i mean they like sold the house yeah. like they they dipped yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't want to stay there either oh god I mean, no like i number one small town mentality everywhere you go you go to the grocery store people are like oh my Right, you know, like oh, God. Like, oh I'm so sorry. like everywhere you and, like, go, yeah, you get the like the up. looks, yeah, yeah and, like, you can't then even you move have on. To, like, yeah, you have to live with it every single day uh, because people are constantly just bringing it up to you, and like, like I get that their intentions are good, and like, oh, I'm so sorry this happened, or like this that and the other, but like after a certain point, yeah, you just want to move on. Yeah, you, you gotta, you have to heal at some point. Yeah, and you can't do that if like it's like going. It's like, you know, going through a traumatic thing and everywhere you go, people are like, oh, my God, I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm so yeah. sorry this happened to you. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, yeah, the thing I'm trying to forget. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for bringing that up. Right. All right. Well, um, other than that, I think that's pretty much the end of the episode. All right. Uh, thank you very much Thanks for, for coming me. out and yeah. uh, being on the show. And thank you very much for picking the topic. Like I said, it was a depressing one, but it, no, it's it's. <laughs> oh, a, I picked the saddest topic. No, possible. no, but it, like like I said, it's a very important one to talk yeah. about because, like we mentioned, not everybody knows the story, especially yeah. nowadays. And so and it's it is almost thirty years. Yeah, it's important to bring it back to light every once in a while and just be like, look, like this was an issue and like mm-hmm. we need to be aware and like i like i said it ties in with mental health it ties in with you know just personal security like you said locking your doors making yeah. sure like you know <laughs> we ain't we don't want no serial killers you no. know you know um so uh we do uh 
Or we did mention that you have the freak show yes. show coming up on the 22nd. Yes. So by the time this releases, that'll be tomorrow. So mm-hmm. if you're in the Sacramento area or if you want to travel to the Sacramento area f- tomorrow, get your ass out here and come oh, see yeah. the Scream Queens, including Danny Demise. Yes. Uh, also, would you like to promote any other shows or your socials at this point? Um, yeah, so we have uh, Scream Queens Gorelust presents the, what are we at, third or fourth, fourth annual? I feel like we're at third. I can't count anymore. Pandemic <laughs> messed me up. I'm like, what year is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Manji. What year is yeah, it? Right? That's how I feel constantly. People are like, that was eight months ago. I'm like, it was two weeks ago. Shush. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so October 14th is our Cabaret Macabre. Um, mm-hmm. We are doing a Silver Scream edition. Okay. The first time putting kind of a different edition on it this year. So it'll be October 14th. Uh, it's a Saturday. It's at the Colonial Theater in Sacramento, which is our home base. And that's going to be another kick-ass show. I already got the lineup booked for that. And nice, we have a nice. pretty sweet fucking lineup. Uh, so come out to see that. Um, see us at sinister halloween creature con- sinister creature halloween con god i fucked that up <laughs> <laughs> so many words um and that is october 21st um i think we're at the scottish Rite center again and then we'll be having an after party that saturday night and then i think we're doing a two-day so back nice, on sunday nice. yeah uh, and follow those... me on instagram yes i post all my shows i have a bunch of shows coming up in august and uh, so that is Danny Demise, D-A-N-I-D-E-M-I-Z-E, yep. on all social medias. I was going to say something else, and then I spaced. Anyway. Plug in all the socials. Oh, yeah, no, no. I was just going to say, for those that aren't aware, Sinister Creature Con is a horror and uh, just all-around awesome convention that occurs twice a year. Twice a year now. Yes, uh, summer and a fall version. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you can check them out. You can go get tickets to Sinister Creature Con. Where you can see uh, a lot of the Scream Queens, you can see a lot of yeah. special guests that they have from like horror movies, whether it be like 80s icons, current mm-hmm. um, horror movies. That's uh, pretty awesome people. Yeah, honest. I believe, didn't they have, um, we were talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween, uh, mm-hmm. didn't they have the 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 girl that played... I can't remember the, the babysitter. Name. Yes. Yes. I'm horrid with names. Yeah, yeah. I considering I work the conventions, I should know these things. <laughs> um, but I can't remember anybody's name to save my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we've had celebrities from all walks of life. I mean, our recent one back in June, um, I had the awesome opportunity to work Rachel True's table uh, oh, from the craft. Yes. And she is phenomenal. Nice. She was yes. amazing. Um, so I don't know where we're at right now. I can't say some things that I do know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you're just gonna have to come in and yeah, find you'll have out. to come and find out. You know, we'll also kind of see what goes on with the strike. But oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, there's really amazing vendors. We always have a rad celebrity lineup. We do our best, and then the the queens also have a table now. So nice, we have a table nice. at every convention. So right. you can come. Get a, get a selfie with the Scream Queens, um, buy some merch, maybe some autographs. Oh, you know? sure. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, 
other than that, thank you all for listening. If you were watching on YouTube, apologies for the camera issues. Uh, <laughs> if you weren't, don't mind me. I'm not saying anything. 